Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you Hitler, whether you like it or not. William and I are continuing with our discussion of Chapter 12 of Part 1 of Adolf Hitler's seminal political classic, Mein Kampf. Now, if you are listening to this episode and you didn't listen to our last one on this subject, which was number 26 about this part of Mein Kampf, feel free to listen to that one or don't. Uh, We'll just fill you in right now on what we said in the last one. We talked about the first, I think we got through 10 pages of this chapter of Mein Kampf, because this is really, in a lot of ways, the most important chapter of Mein Kampf, because this is where Hitler answers, how do you do anything in politics? (laughs) Uh, You know, he spends the first 11 chapters, for the most part, talking about his red pill story and how he (laughs) spends uh, 300 pages talking about how he got red pilled and going through the same sorts of things that everybody goes through. Uh, I went through, uh, oh, geez, uh, is this is this a Jew or an American? (laughs) It's this is hard questions. A water averse people. All the funny things he says about water all the things that you read and you think are great. But in chapter twelve, he gets down to to business. And the main things that we talked about last time are Hitler's emphasis on you have to build a movement because you cannot simply enter politics and uh, I don't know run for office and then try to affect things from office because there's corruption. There's all sorts of ways that you you just can't be effective without people who are loyal to you directly. And so you have to build a movement. That movement has to be based on the working class. It Mm -hmm. cannot be based on the bourgeoisie, Mm -hmm. uh, contrary to the opinions of Robert Welsh. You know what I'm talking about? The the guy that did the, um, what was it called? The John Birch Society in the 1960s, where a bunch of, it was middle class people, upper middle class people would sit around in their nice parlors once a week and listen to a tape that Mr. Rob- Rabbit Welsh would put out uh, <laughs> talking about, oh, the, it's the communists and we're here to stand up to the communists. And everybody in the group, uh, it was a nationwide group, everybody who was corresponding with uh, Welsh was yeah, for the most part anti-Semitic. They knew, they knew what the problem was, but, oh, here, I've got something to sell you. We don't need to talk about the Jews. We ha- it's this actually what we have to do is we can do a super sneaky revolution. Right. Uh, as George and they didn't even put it. They didn't even succeed in that because i mean the, the, look at all the offices now oh no of course not like who's in what office <laughs> no nobody nobody ever took that seriously so you can't do that you have to base hitler's quite clear you have to base it on the working class because these are the people who actually have the guts to fight and even if they have something to lose i mean you know they have a job they have a house they have a family they have things to lose but they're not as materialist mm-hmm. as your typical bourgeois person now right. hitler doesn't Totally hate the bourgeoisie. He no, does, and not. we'll see in this chapter. He <laughs> does say a few parts where he's, he says, "Yeah, you know, these bourgeoisie. There's a few of them. The intelligentsia. Actually, I don't think he says the bourgeoisie. He hates the bourgeoisie in toto. Right, right. But he says there's a couple people who are smart who don't suck. But for the <laughs> most part, he hates them. Right. So one other thing to mention from his, or actually two other things to mention that we covered last time: fanatical intolerance. So. The idea that you can't build a coalition of right-wing groups. Hitler learned that lesson the hard way in 1923 when they formed a coalition to overthrow the, the Bavarian government and got crushed by the state. And then all the conservatives, Gustav von Kahr, all ran away and, and stabbed him back. So And people got killed. Yeah, coalition. It was like Charlottesville, but like with actual, you know, actual deaths. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
Oh, and then also, I think it's it's the thing that shouldn't have to be said, but it does have to be said. And Hitler, as always, will say the thing that has to be said that people don't want to say. So he says right at the end of point number five on his list of things that you have to do. And this is where we rounded out last time. Without the clearest knowledge of the racial problem and hence of the Jewish problem, there will never be a resurrection of the German nation. Substitute in America or white people, Western Europe, America, and it applies to today. The racial question gives the key not only to world history, but to all human culture. Mm. So Yeah, and it cannot be said better, honestly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let, uh, William, let me just outline real quick what we're going to... I propose to get through 10 more pages of this today. And Hitler talks about, in points 6 through 11, he talks about organization, propaganda. He talks about not doing so-called enlightenment work. Right. Uh, <laughs> not doing entertainment, not talking about issues that don't matter. And uh, then he talks more about organization. He keeps coming back to organization. Um, he brings out also the point of not talking about frivolous matters uh, up when he discusses the points for education in the state. Also in Mein Kampf at yeah. a different point, not in this chapter. But he, ha- he emphasizes well, save, that a save lot. That when we get to it. Oh, oh, oh. All right. So let's start off with point six. I'm not going to read all of everything, but I'm going to read a good amount of it because this really is it answers all the questions that need to be answered. Mm-hmm. So number six, organizing the broad masses of our people, which are today in the international camp. So when he says international camp, he means communists, people in the uh, people under control of Jewish power. Leftoids. Yeah. <laughs> organizing the broad masses who are today in the international camp into a national people's community does not mean renouncing the defense of justified class interests. Divergent class and professional interests are not synonymous with class cleavage, but are natural consequences of our economic life. Professional grouping is in no way opposed to a true national community, for the latter consists in the unity of a nation in all those questions which affect the nation as such. The integration of a occupational group, which has become a class with the national community, or merely with the state, is not accomplished by the lowering of higher classes, but by the uplifting of lower classes. That's where I wanted to interject. Okay, so, right. Yeah. We're not, this is like communism is stupid. We're right. Not going to- communism is the bringing about of equality by bringing everybody to the lowest common denominator, whereas national socialism doesn't believe in equality because equality is stupid and doesn't, you know, work with evolution whatsoever uh, or any other type of hierarchical uh, mentality of nature. And so, it wants to bring... Like, it doesn't want to bring the people that have already achieved, you know, great status down. It wants to bring people that are at the lower statuses up, right? So, you want to increase your quality of life as compared to decrease anyone's quality of life. Like, you don't want to, you don't want to, to try to achieve the increase of quality of life terminology. You quality of life. Are you yeah. being a materialist here? Are you talking about just having nice things and having money? Right. I mean, that's the thing. That's, it's both because we, we do like to have interior plumbing, right? So, in <laughs> you know, bringing up quality of life for, for certain people is, is certainly partially materialistic, but also in the spiritual way as well. Because again, and we can we can look at modern Europe and modern United States, basically, or anything in the West. Any advanced civilization around the world, or any just civilization that used to have its own culture, uh, and you look at these these international cities these days with these these cookie cutter architectural pieces, that causes psychological depression on the population to see that these awful iron and 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 glass structures, where you used to see a cultural 
piece, right? Like a piece of architecture that signified where you're at culturally and, and, uh, you know, within, within the time frame of the evolution of that, of that specific culture. And, and you could recognize and say, yeah, that was the building that my grandfather saw or my, my great grandfather helped. So you're build. saying Hitler is talking about bringing up the lower classes and bringing up their culture, their cultural level, their level of oh, education. Yeah. Oh, well, not necessarily just education, but like, because when we, people think education, they think necessarily just schooling. And it's just like, oh, well, in order to, to bring up the cultural education of the, of the broad masses, you have to just impose like 10 hour school days on, on the, the, the poor, the poor people. Like, no, that's ridiculous. Like, cause you can increase their ability to understand culture or just like the, the broad masses understanding of culture or, um, or interaction with culture just by their everyday lives. Right. And I think that's what, what Hitler is discussing, uh, when he put in so much time time, effort, and state money into, uh, into, to symphonies, into, uh, operas, into art projects, right? Into architectural building projects and everything else like that. Uh, so that the everyday life, like it, even if you don't make as much money as the next guy, like, as long as like everything around you seems like it's better, your life will automatically seem better, right? And not, but not, does Hitler, sounds very materialistic, I mean, but I, I don't get the impression, impression that Hitler really gives a damn about your, your personal life and how, how good you feel during the day. I mean, maybe he does a little bit. Of course he does. He's an but artist. What's the, no, that, I think you're missing the point here. The mm. real thing that Hitler's getting at mm. is, is the integration of the classes. It's, you can't have, you're going to, I mean, if you, well, you there's have, that you too, have a yeah. blue collar man and a, a white collar man, you have a lawyer and a plumber. Yeah. These guys have totally different lives. They work in different fields. They, they have different backgrounds, but what should be common to them is their culture the stories well, right, that yeah. they grew up with the music that they like the clothing uh, the clothing the the uh, their sense of, of beauty and architecture and, and everything around that there should be something that they have in common right like they're not going to talk about oh yeah i did a lawsuit today brah like, <laughs> oh yeah i fixed uh but that, pipe, i think that's bro. part of that. Like, that you can't you can't really talk about that but you can talk you can have some common commonality with people outside of your profession and outside of your class if you have common culture right no i I don't disagree there and and i mean what do people do today like the only (laughs) thing that americans have in common i think is your sports ball if you pick any random group of people and put them in a room together what are they going to talk about that's what is the cultural level they're going to talk about football basketball maybe i think that's maybe even too advanced nowadays (laughs) they might might talk about stupid uh shit on tv but the sad thing is shows uh, as uh negrified yeah. as we are mm-hmm. we don't even have common like trash to talk about everyone has their own niche trash right your marvel <laughs> like so your, worse than er- everybody has their own superhero they fucking you know follow or whatever else like that but no like as far as integrating the, the classes like that's obviously part of it but it's it's integration in a way that elevates the lower to the higher not bringing the the higher down to the lower because again, that's that's anti-progress. Bringing the higher down to the lower is, is antithetical to progress. You want everybody to go up, not down, right? Okay, right. So yeah. it's like philanthropy is, is kind of one of those ways where you can meld the upper and lower classes. Uh, and the Romans got this down pretty well, I think, uh, in the early days. Um, Give me a century. Uh, God, you'd be the expert at this. Is one of the <laughs> I, I I think of early Rome. Uh, whenever you had ph- like phil- philanthropic uh, leadership, where they would compete uh, to to see who could build the, you know the better bathhouses for the population or whatever. I'm not sure what's that. be. I'd imagine early Rome where it was good, <laughs> not oh, shitty. Yeah, when Rome. the Roman aristocracy was good, I don't think yeah. they were building bathhouses. Uh, well, say, yeah. let's say 
Okay. Well, or maybe call let's, us let's or, say or, the or second century BC. Well, a little early. Let's say third yeah. century BC. Maybe an amphitheater. When right when uh, several dozen senators died on the battlefield in one day fighting Hannibal at Cannae. Sweet. That's what you're talking about. Yeah, that those, era. those times. Yeah, where they where they were cool with like helping you know the population, where they actually did the thing with that right, aristocracy. When the, when the aristocrats gave a shit. Right. Exactly. And I think that's what Hitler's talking about is building new aristocracies and this this whole thing about uh, breeding leadership and everything else like that. But that's a different tangent for for this specific topic. But as far as melding the, the the population together, he understands that there's a lot of culture wrapped up in the major, uh, you know, the major city centers, right? The the intel the intelligentsia, as he would say. Uh, there's there's a lot of that um, aristocratic culture that still kind of resides in that thing. Not obviously too much of it. And he does obviously go really far in his criticism of of, uh, of that class of people, which he's not wrong either. I mean, the bourgeois is bourgeoisie is quite a, a reprehensible. Group, but he expresses how the the culture right, and it, this is where he kind of gets on the same plateau as Calgary. And I know we used to, we've done episodes before about Calgary before, but this is one of the points that you can actually start uh, to see a parallel. All right, slow down a second. Oh, sorry, so, Calgary. All right, who is he again? In case oh right, anybody, yeah, it was just. Our listeners generally probably know, but you know, maybe a lot of people don't know. Right. Uh, so, uh, Richard Ichigo von Kudenhoven Kallergi, uh was the son of... No, no, hold on. I'll, oh, I'll, sorry. I'll, I'll tell you. He was, oh. a global, he was a globalist stooge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, generally a smart guy, very interesting guy, and he's sort of the founder of the European Union. He was right. half Japanese, half European. He was a, a buddy of Winston Churchill. Total piece of shit, but kind of interesting to read about. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> he had the opposite view of Adolf Hitler right. on politics. Like on a European Union-esque type of he, style. We, like weirdly similar ideas on race. I mean, because people back then had common sense. Right. But the main difference is Kalergi's idea of how to build power was to get all the rich people together in a room mm-hmm. and then decide yeah. and then have unity right? and everybody else be damned. Hitler's idea is, no, we're going to build a society from the ground up. We're going to take power. And then anybody who doesn't like it get didn't fucked. deserve to be there in the first yeah. place. They fight for it. Right. So you basically have a uh, tribal. And I don't give a damn if your aunt, if your great, great, great grandpa <laughs> fought with Charlemagne. That's, you know, what have you done for me in the last thousand years? Right. See, that matters. But it, yeah, it's, it's a tribal populism versus uh, <laughs> versus the Illuminati. So, <laughs> so yeah, Clergy uh, is the, the elitist idea of how to right. build a nation. Hitler is the popular the caesarean way of how to build a nation right yeah it's it's the the idea of the germination of the folk the 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 root genetic population that he goes after the germanic their germanic folk so like your root population is what breeds your aristocracy right? your best of your best come from the breeding pool that is your basic population stock and then he talks about that obviously okay, but, a few but times what were you going to say about clergy <laughs> oh right so uh the point about about our good old friend richard is that he uh he talks about this point here, the city centers being a cultural hub, right, for the breeding ground of culture. That the while the this was the juxtaposition between Hitler and Calgary is that Calgary saw the city centers as being your creation points of culture, whereas Hitler saw your rustic folk, your countryside people as, as where you get your root culture from, right? And then it goes and is, and is then refined in the city as compared to the other way around where Calgary thought that all culture for the countryside was just a diluted, watered-down version of the culture that was created in cities. Uh-huh. 
And so that is... And you sort of notice like throughout the last 500 years that there seemed... I mean, this is a Spangler point, but there's fewer and fewer cities that matter culturally Mm -hmm. in Europe. Like back in 1500, you would have said, well, Florence, Venice, Verona... Uh, Wittenberg, uh, like you name a dozen cities in the Holy Roman Worms, Empire, yeah, Paris, yeah. Uh, London, Königsberg, but then yeah, you know, little cities on the outside too. But then you get to the 20th century and it's, Genoa, it's really Berlin, Paris, London, Washington, New York, Washington, and, and now you get yeah. to the 21st century, it's New York. Yeah, basically, unfortunately, because like there's there's a few that still remain as far as cultural landmarks. Based on certain things like Milan for fashion, right? Or, or Vienna for that matter. But yeah. That's, that's generous of you. Yeah, I know. I'm being very nice. <laughs> uh, or, or Geneva. Geneva is probably one of the only ones that we hear of really uh, in, in Europe with the exception of The Hague. So we have The Hague, Geneva. Sometimes you get London. Sometimes Berlin. Paris only because it's burning every other week. <laughs> like, Okay, but there's yeah. the country versus the city. Right. And Hitler's opinion is that the culture that's good and that matters comes generally speaking from the country. Right. Like it it's rooted and then in the countryside built- and is amalgamated and then refined in its city. Right, because Hitler, of course, loved Wagner and right. Wagner is associated with Beirut. Right. So like, Hitler is not a Ted K kind of guy, right? Like he's not like, yeah, let's just eradicate the cities and then go live in, in you know, a small peasant house in the middle of the Alps. Like he wasn't about that. Um he definitely enjoyed the peasant house in the Alps, and I don't think any sane person you know, disagrees with that because it's quite peaceful out there. But um, the point is, is that he he emphasizes on the idea of a root genetic stock population that then all culture from that race generates from. You know, all all of it, all architecture, art, music, everything, all all of the the intellectualism and everything else like that draws itself from the purity of the root population, which okay. is why he gets so much into the racial. Right, level. I think we can all agree with that. I was going to make a facile analogy to country music. And <laughs> Look, the, 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 or no, no, here's the a good one. I'll, I'll use I'll, I, 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 got a, I got a better one. <laughs> Rap. Oh God! All right. <laughs> so you know, let's let's credit the Negro with something here. All right. Your your natural rap of the 1980s that real niggas was was rapping in the streets. Oh, hip hop is far yeah, better. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's not Homer. <laughs> it's no, not no, Shakespeare. No. It's no. uh. Hell, it's not even James Joyce, but right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but your your commercialized Jewish rap of the last twenty five years is actually detectably worse. Even if we're talking about like low, cul- we're talking about very low culture here. Right? Yeah. Hit but after you, you little Uzi Vert. You know, they used to sing about like real things, like how they used to have gang wars. Right. And, the come I don't up, know, just, the struggle. Just, yeah, the, the basic things that anybody who has is in touch with history can understand. And now the they just whine, whine about, I mean, the club. Right. If if even that. So. If even that. Yeah. Now it's it's kind of, it's devolved into what all peak civilizations devolve into, according to Marcus Aurelius, butt fuckery. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah well, okay. But <laughs> you know. all right. So what does any of this matter politically? Like Hitler obviously is talking about culture. He's not just like, well, it would be nice if we could just have like lots of culture. He He cares about culture. For itself, of course, but right. he isn't, I don't know, a, a somebody who just fetishizes culture. No, he, but he, he, he this recognizes- is, There's a political point here, right? right. Isn't there? Well, it, it, uh, there is definitely a political point, but it's the, the political point comes naturally out of what he considers, and I think he mentions, I think he actually uses the word enlightened somewhere around here, the, the enlightenment of the population, the enlightenment of the nation, right? Like, one, once your nation is able to amalgamate amount amongst itself, or they be able to become a cohesive unit- and and that's why he doesn't he doesn't go into 
what type of government. Like, there's a there's just a point later that we get into. No, no, don't, yeah, don't get, don't get ahead of ourselves here. Yeah, we won't get ahead of ourselves. But, yeah, so it's the political elements will come naturally out of an enlightened population. Obviously, and with an enlightenment element to it, like, you have a hierarchy, right? That You have the, those that are leading this this in, this enlightened revolution uh, sort of thing to, to a new and, and cohesive government style, whatever the heck uh, decides to, to spring up naturally from your population. All right, I'm going to read read this line because I think it makes the point we're getting at fairly concisely. Mm. The German worker will not be raised to the framework of the German national community by means of feeble scenes of fraternization, but by a conscious raising of his social and cultural situation until the most serious differences may be viewed as bridged. So what he wants is... Like I was saying earlier with the plumber and the lawyer, you need to be able to have something in common with other people. And if if the, the plumber is just watching football all day, we're going to go to the plumber and say, hey, guy, uh, yo, <laughs> it's, not, it's called YouTube. You can watch better shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe don't watch football. Maybe go find some friends and play some football or rugby that works, or yeah, that whatever, works soccer. Yeah. The point is that you incrementally do it from the position that they're at. Like you don't you don't culture shock them and you don't bring down the the elevated ones to the lower positions. Yeah. So I guess we we're not doing like Hollywood Nazi SS like kicks down the door with like points a gun at you and it's like watch this ballet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I mean to be fair, <laughs> that would be pretty cool. <laughs> That'd probably be the way to do it. Honestly, is it's just okay. But Hitler goes on to explain what the cause of this problem is. Right. There's a social divide people's habits and a cultural divide i mean so it's kind of the same thing right yeah what you do on your daily basis is going to to cause a a a divide amongst those who do things that are different which is why you kind of have to actively get involved which is what hitler's talking about like you have to actively impress these things upon the population the severest obstacle so hitler here the severest obstacle to the present day workers approach to the national community lies not in the defense of his class interests but in his international leadership and attitude, which are hostile to the people on the fatherland. So you can be a blue dog Democrat. You can stand up for workers' rights. Just don't do it with Jewish leadership. Right. That, that's <laughs> the, the summary of that. The same unions with a fanatical national leadership in political and national matters would make millions of workers into the most valuable members of their nation, regardless of the various struggles that took place over period. Uh, purely economic matter. So he's referring to all the, uh, you know, fights between workers and and the, the state and the aristocracy and the bourgeoisie over you know the nineteenth century. A movement which wants honestly to give the German worker back to his people. So in other words, to make him not a communist and make him loyal to the people and this, and hopefully the state, assuming the state represents the people, right. And tear him away from the international delusion must sharply attack a conception dominant above all in employer circles, which under national community understands the unresisting economic surrender of the employee to the employer and which chooses to regard any attempt at safeguarding even justified interests regarding the employee's economic existence as an attack on the national community. 
Such an assertion is not only untrue, but a conscious lie because the national community imposes its obligations not only on the one side, but also on the other. So Hitler here is attacking Republicans. This is the Fox News. Well, you just need to work harder and yeah, you, pull yourself uh, up by your bootstraps. This is exactly what he's attacking. Oh, you're you're uh, you're poor. Well, fuck you. You didn't try hard enough. That's that is the attitude that he's attacking here. Mm-hmm. That this is not a patriotic attitude. This is not a conservative. Maybe it's a conservative attitude, but it's not a a useful attitude. And it's not a fighting attitude. It's not a nationalist attitude. So going on, just as surely as a worker sins against the spirit of a real national community when, out of regard for the common welfare and the survival of a national economy, he uses his power to raise extortionate demands an employer likewise breaks this community to the same extent when he conducts his business in an inhuman, exploiting way, misuses the national labor force, and makes millions out of its sweat. So, yeah, if you're friend, and Hitler's probably thinking about World War One. Right. So thinking about war profiteers. Oh, I'm 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 doing so much for the nation. I'm manufacturing ten thousand uh, Blue Cross gas shells per day. And what the fuck are you doing? You didn't come to work on time. But I'm sick, sir. Fuck you. Meanwhile, <laughs> you're sick, making sir. like millions of Reichsmarks and act. Oh, I'm sacrificing so much, so much for the nation. Get the fuck out. Right. Yeah. Like you're not sacrificing if you're making money. I mean, that's that's what Hitler is saying. Right. If you're ben- if you're profiting and benefiting, you're obviously not sacrificing. Like. Yeah. So sacrificing is a net negative. Oh, but look at how much money I've made for how many artillery pieces I've produced. It's like, yeah, but you're also making a shit ton of money doing it. The soldier at the front is getting shot at, shelled, gassed by the other side. That money should be and going he's back getting, to the you know, pissant wages. And yeah, his rations are like slightly better than what civilians are getting. But that's not saying much. Right. You should put that money back into the nation somehow into the war effort. So. Yeah, this this just I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of when I read this, you know, conservatives, boomer capitalism, worshipers, <laughs> right. the, the gamut of the Fox News Republicans. Uh, What's his face? That annoying guy from the 90s that are or from the 2000s. Iraq war back, members. back, back. Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck. <laughs> Why is it always back? The fucking guy uh, 19 July 20th. They're going to put Beck in charge. Okay, so for the rest of this part, Hitler is mainly just stressing points that we've already talked about, about tearing the workers away from the, as he calls it, the international delusion, and and then bringing them into the into the national community. So that's we talked about that more last time. I don't want to rehash it. And then here's the part getting toward the end of part six, where he talks about intelligentsia who might be useful. So this is I like to think his uh, why maybe he would like us. <laughs> If in the circles of the national intelligentsia, there are found men with the warmest hearts for their people and its future, imbued with the deepest knowledge of the importance of this struggle for the soul of the masses, they will be highly welcome in the ranks of this movement as a valuable spiritual backbone. But winning over the bourgeois voting cattle can never be the aim of this movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, check the German. Yeah, he does say bourgeois voting cattle. It's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just uh, on, on that note there, we are reading the Ralph Mannheim ADL approved Jewish Mein Kampf. Ralph Mannheim. Uh, just because, one, it's the most common one that people have lying around. Mm-hmm. But we, we did find a few spots where good old Ralph here is trying to trick us with some yep. Jew mistranslations. Some, some Talmudicness. <laughs> but overall, you can read this. And if you just... Read it with a open and and uh, a charitable mind. Yeah, you will you will understand what Hitler is really saying. All right, this last part I think is I wrote on the side here. Godlike insight. If it were, 
So if, if our objective were to win over the bourgeois voting cattle, the movement would burden itself with a dead weight, which by its whole nature would paralyze our power to recruit from the broad masses. For regardless of the theoretical beauty of the idea of leader of leading together the broadest masses from below and from above within the framework of the movement, there is the opposing fact that by psychological pr- propagandizing of bourgeois masses in general meetings, it may be possible to create moods and even to spread insight, but not to do away with qualities of character or, better expressed, vices whose development and origin embrace centuries. So he's talking about materialism, greed for money in, in the bourgeoisie. The difference with regard to the cultural level on both sides and the attitude on both sides toward questions raised by economic interests is at present still so great that as soon as the intoxication of the meetings is passed, it would, it would at once manifest itself as an obstacle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the right wing has been doing meetings for, what, 60 years? Ever. Uh, forever. I mean, forever. Like, it's always been meetings. I've been to plenty of meetings, thinking back to, like, you know, 2016 days. We're fucking great. Like, I got a lot out of it. I think a lot of the people around me got a lot out of it. But, uh, and, like, little things were achieved. I mean, made connections that have lasted for years. But that, as good as that might be, it isn't achieving what Hitler's setting out to achieve here, which is a movement of the broad masses. Right. You have a meeting and then that's it. And there's it doesn't build. Right. You need a permanence. So finally, the goal is not to undertake a restratification in the camp that is national to begin with. So in other words, we're not trying to just take conservatives and then build a conservative movement around some new group of people. Right. Like this is, I mean, <clears throat> we can think of a lot of examples uh, like the Tea Party or something. We're going to uh, we're going <laughs> to re- reshuffle the conservatives. Right. But to win over the anti-national camp. So anti-national camp, this is, yeah. Commies. Commies, basically. And to summarize, last time we said we talked about this, and it's a difficult question because is Hitler trying to say here that we should just actually go straight up recruit Antifa or try to recruit them? Like go and preach the good word of national socialism <laughs> to straight up communists. Black bloc. <laughs> and... I think the answer is like, I said last time the answer is no, because back in when he's writing 1923, 24, communists were, there was a heavy block within communists who were working class, guys, blue dog Democrats in the American political context. Uh, So people who had good instincts and, and, and did fit that working class thing that Hitler wants to recruit from. You look at Antifa now, they're mostly upper middle class, bourgeois, like bourgeois r- yeah. rich college fuckers. So there is, you know, the, the political paradigms don't really work together. But I do think Hitler would reproach us and say that we're being pussies for not at least trying a little bit to, right. go, after, to go after commies. <laughs> because you do, you believe it or not, I mean, I've come across people who came into this from being lefties. Yeah, no, there's a few. It happens. Yeah. You know, like they realize because it's like, again, as it's been pointed out numerous times at this point, probably kind of browbeated is that their economic alignments aren't too far off from ours. Like, you know, in all reality, with the exception of, of the got, you know, the extremist communist thing of where it's like, yeah, let's just repossess all wealth. And, oh, yeah. You, know, you think about that nonsense. Occupy Wall Street, for instance. I mean, yeah, this is something sense. that, yeah, Nazis can get behind Occupy Wall Street. Right. Yeah. At least the core economic message of it. Right. You know, that there has there's there's some overlap, which is. You know, again, we're just for reasonable economics. We're, we're, we're for reasonable society. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Next point. Number seven. This is where he starts talking about propaganda. Yep. 
This one-sided but thereby clear position must express itself in the propaganda of the movement and, on the other hand, in turn, is required on propagandist grounds. If the propaganda is to be effective for the movement, it must be addressed to only one quarter, since otherwise, in view of the difference in the intellectual training of the two camps in question, Mm. bourgeoisie and, and, and working class, either it will not be understood by the one group or by the other, it would be rejected as obvious and therefore uninteresting. So let's think of some examples here where you might have propaganda that the... This is a strange example, but any leftist meme compared to any right-wing meme. The the right-wing meme has like three words on it, right? Mm -hmm. And then the left-wing meme is a paragraph. (laughs) And it, it has to do with... Again, we've we've discussed this quite a bit of times before. the 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 amount of um, Latinate words that are present uh, yeah. in the message kind of thing. Right. Imagery, right, is a major thing. Whether it's simplistic or whether it's hyper complex, uh, or whether it's it's like that corporate cringe art kind of thing versus your working man style of, of artistic uh, work. There's a bunch of this. Like, we could get into. We could speak for days on on the differences in propaganda between the differences. Of right. Classes. So. It, it, you can't create you're not going to be able to create propaganda that's both well Hitler can't well you're not going to be able to create propaganda that's consistently appealing to the working class and to the bourgeoisie you right. might write something you might write an article Vidar articles for instance mm. these are appealing to bourgeoisie Unce review I read Unce review all the time but these are appealing to bourgeoisie working right. class doesn't read fucking Unce review right now on the other hand you might have propaganda that is effective with the working class now we don't really have a lot of nazi examples to draw on in recent years well we could go we could say glr or something but let's take trump that's a good easy example there trump trump was appealing to he was very appealing to the working class he was very popular yeah tons of people went to trump rallies trump was the shit but it's that second party says right there even if you are understood by one group, as Trump succeeded in doing, the other group is going to reject it as obvious and therefore uninteresting. Right. So you had tons of upper con- upper class conservatives being like, uh, oh, Donald Trump. Well, uh, uh, right. Yeah. yeah so vulgar. And they, it's not even so vulgar. It's like, oh, uh, we know. We know. But they keep, mo- they keep them at a distance with their riding crops. You know what I mean? They, t- they treat him as a leper. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. They, they lose and, and Trump wins. And it's like, well, how did that happen? Well, you know, it's because he had charisma, <laughs> you know, and he was able to pull together the, the broad voting populace. And then here Hitler comes up on here. We found this is where we found a, a example of our Jewish translator trying to Jew us here. <laughs> Even the style and the tone of its individual products cannot be equally effective for two such extreme groups. If propaganda renounces primitiveness of expression it does not find its way into the feeling of the broad masses. So that word right there, primitiveness, that's our Jew Jewing us. The real the real translation is there's a couple different ways you can translate it. The original word is uh Urwichkeit. The proto growingness. It's like a state of a state of eternal becoming. Um like the 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 origin or the the original becoming in the state of being that. In a sense, it is a highly philosophical word, and German is, is known for that. So, what it means is 
the essence of a thing, right? Like you can't lose your primeval essence of a thing. That which is the as we were no. talking about earlier about the the root population, right? Like the, a racial root, or you have like a genetic root of a population. That's what he's getting at here. Is that that original spark, that original that original purity? Well, I got yeah, original. That I got a better translation here. This is the 1941 translation. That's really hard to find nowadays. It's by John Chamberlain and Sidney Fay. Uh, I don't know Chamberlain, but Sidney Fay was a journalist who wrote, who later was called an extremist and blah, blah, blah. He wrote a book about World War I and how it you know, wasn't Germany's fault. Uh, really? he tra- they translate, if propaganda renounces the originality of expression, mm-hmm. it would not find its way into the feeling of the great masses. I mean, if you look, they- up, if you look up the German word and get into the etymology of it, it means it's something like originality primevalness naturalness earthiness yeah these it, are all the concepts that it doesn't are tied mean the originality the is in like the the as we, as we think of originality and creation of of things right it means as in the origin point you're again that's why the the word ur is is part of that right so like you're and the, the being of so you have um you have this when he's referring to the 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 root origin population groups right like like your your root people your root population, right? Your 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 stock pop is what it basically is what he talks about a few times in in, uh, in Mein Kampf, where he uses uh, your your stock populations. That's what he's getting at when he means that what appeals to that that population, right? Like what appeals to the most inner purity of the race, the, the sensibilities of the most pure elements of the race, the most basal elements of the race. What speaks to that? And that's what he's talking about when he means when he when he, when he means. Uh, you know this like keep it to its originality or however we want to discuss it yeah i mean he could have said for originality he could have said ursprünglichkeit mm-hmm. um but he's yeah so read the sentence again with a different translation uh with a less biased one if propaganda renounces originality earthiness of expression it does not find its way into the feeling of the broad masses right which is Trump conformed perfectly to that point. Yeah, because again, most like the broad masses are just not all encompassing of the of the root masses. So therefore, if you're appealing to that basal state, those people that think they're above it, your one ten islanders and everybody else like that are going to think that they're either above it or they are or or it's too it's too mundane for most. Right, like anybody who who is beyond uh kind of a a root a root lifestyle uh, is going to think themselves above. This type of material, again, as he says, is going to think it's boring. It's going to be it's going to be beneath him in their sense of, of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, Hitler elaborates on this in, in the rest of the paragraph. He talks about how it is very hard to find a speaker who can talk to street sweepers, locksmiths, sewer cleaners, and so on mm-hmm. one day, and then the next day talk to professors. Right. It's very hard to find a guy who can do both. It's even harder, he says, to find somebody who can talk to both those groups of people, professors and street sweepers, at the same in the same room at yeah. the same time. <laughs> like, wow. And, you know, I, I think he's humble bragging a little bit there right. yeah, <laughs> that he can do both. sly thing. But he could, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean. And I think that brings us to point nine. No, no, we're, we're uh, uh, there's a couple more parts I want to read here in point seven. Oh, I scooped over eight. My apologies. Yeah. Okay, so in a mass meeting of all classes, it is not that speaker who is mentally closest to the intellectualist present who speaks best, but the one who conquers the hearts of the masses. Mm. Okay, so 
Uh, a member of the intelligentsia present at such a meeting who carps at the intellectual level of his speech despite the speaker's obvious effect on the lower strata he has set out to conquer proves the complete incapacity of his thinking and the worthlessness of his person for the young movement. And that's BAP. And that's BAP? Yeah. <laughs> fucking faggot it can only use that intellectual who comprehends the task and the goal of the movement such as okay blah blah blah. for propaganda is not intended to provide entertainment for people who are national minded to begin with but to win the enemies of our nationality insofar as they are of our blood and i hate now this is a great line because Uh, this is not fucking entertainment i know we try to be entertaining right yeah a little bit but this is more educational Yes, and also we encourage you to then go spread the word. And, you know, we we set the example because we both have done real things. Right. <laughs> not like Hitler, but, you know. No, of course not. But the point is, is that it's good Good education should be entertaining. Again, you don't want to pay attention to the professor or whatever that's just kind of, you know, monotoning the entire time writing on a chalkboard. You want some, some pizzazz to it. Take Tucker Carlson. Yeah. This is effectively providing entertainment. I don't. Tucker Carlson is not doing propaganda. He's doing entertainment. He's preaching to the choir, as they say. Effectively, yeah. If he was on CNN, that'd be a different story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just cra- crash CNN. Like, yeah. <laughs> push Wolf Blitzer out of the, out of the way. Fucker. It's my show now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I'm thinking. No, that Wolf Blitzer's the Jew. I'm thinking of uh, the Jew. Like, the, the like, faggot, like most uh, of them are. The fucking silver hair. Uh, Which one? Carl, what's is there name? a Schumer? I can't remember. Uh, no, Wolf, Wolf. Whatever that fucking faggot on CNN. Uh, <laughs> Name one. <laughs> in general, these those trends of thought, which I have briefly summarized under the heading of war propaganda, should be determined and decisive for our movement in the manner and execution of its. Okay. Well, he talked about in a previous chapter about war propaganda specifically uh, and how British propaganda was very good during World War One at just beating the point home. Like it, it just yeah. was completely one sided. Like Germans are crucifying uh, British soldiers. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they're killing babies. Uh, they're bayoneting dogs. Like, yeah. it was just fucking crazy <laughs> retard shit, but it works. Whereas the German propaganda was like, uh, Tommy is stupid, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Which is like, okay, that's funny, but it, it's not good. And actually, it, that isn't really, I mean, he just is alluding to the point here, but it's funny because the liberals lately, you start to notice the left has started to attack Nazis. I mean, they they do both, right? They attack Nazis or National Socialists or anybody, hate thinkers in general. Hate thinkers. Hate thinkers as they would call them. Right. They they attack their enemies as evil and oh, yeah, less often though, but, but often, even more increasingly, they attack us as being funny. Oh. You see you see mockery of Nazis oh, yeah, of, all the time. And well, that's been around since the 60s, has it not, though? The oh, it, all, it, it always is around, but it's it's the left and the Jews are making a mistake whenever they make fun of Nazis, mm-hmm. in in Hitler's opinion, uh, because they're they're doing what the Germans are doing in World War One. They're not riling up people to hate. Now, you see things like when Netflix does a TV show about Nazis and how you should kill them. That is good propaganda. Right. Oh, <laughs> uh, from oh, their point Nazi of view. hunters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or there's a new movie coming out. Looks fucking disgusting. Talk about the Finnish one. Yeah. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Okay. So you know about this. Maybe, yeah. I, maybe I told you. No, I saw. I saw. The, saw I saw the, the commercials for it on uh, on social media. Okay. So yeah, uh, it's a movie about some Finnish gold miner in 1944 
and some German soldiers come and like threaten him, and then he like starts murdering people, which is absurd. Just which is, like, like, on its face, absurd, complete fictional. Like the Finns and Germans are on the same side of the war, right? It, there's like, like fifty different ways that it's retarded. Yeah, uh, historically, is... it's morally evil. It's artistically bad. It's like gay and fake. It was honestly done specifically because the Finnish elections just happened this past weekend, and they're trying to drum up right. uh, anti anti nationalistic sentiment within the Finnish uh, right wing or the Finnish uh, population in general. Even though the Finnish right wing, congratulations, guys, won an election this past uh, oh, weekend. Oh, do I know? <laughs> at least just... at least Sanamarin's no longer the prime. I'm sure minister. they will have. <laughs> will throw all the Somalis out of Helsinki. I know. I hope, and then they'll leave NATO too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it, it's really weird liberal propaganda now. You start, you're seeing this where, right? They're making a movie about Finland, right? An anti-Nazi movie about Finland. Right, now, right. like, who's the audience here? Is the audience Finns? Like, to be like, oh, hey, Finlanders, you guys fought not. You can be part of the anti-Nazi alliance. By the I, way, I Rus- really Russians are Nazis. Yeah, like, <laughs> wouldn't it make more sense to make movies about the Winter War, Rus- uh, Finns killing Russians? The whole NATO. Uh, no, that would have made the most sense if you're trying to get propaganda over there for the ascension of nato go after the russians that's who you're trying to book right but anyway. zog is more concerned with internal enemies i mean is the audience yeah. for this movie americans and you know british and everybody else in europe this is the point you should be like this base finlander and one hate nazis but two also Violent. be like the finlanders because you should love finland because finland joined nato and they might get invaded by russia or we might need to invade russia from finland P- take your pick therefore be interested in Finland. I've been noticing this. Well, maybe I'm just being a, a, a conspiracy theorist. But whenever I see something that's like pro, it's like promoting Georgian history or culture or Finland or like any of these countries like around Russia, I'm mm. like, nobody was taking an interest in that before. You know, I've always been interested in these things. Nobody yeah. was nobody was like, oh, yeah, you know, Georgia's an interesting place. Like all of a sudden, I'm seeing just things I don't want to like, no, I don't. I, I mean, I, it might just be me noticing no, things not, that though. aren't really there. It, no, but this Finland thing is part of this same. Tr- it's like it's all, all part the of this geopolitical belt. shit. It's it's you're wrong. Like you're 100 right. to make to make the American population like sympathetic to these countries in Eastern Europe, which, you know, perfectly nice countries or whatever. But it's like, oh, you should care about country X because we're going to launch missiles from that country. <laughs> uh, and, and therefore, when like Russia does something to that country, you should be angry about it and be willing for us to fucking take your sons and send them to war and right. fucking take your money and give it to war profiteers to right. spend on making those missiles that we're going to put in some country and like maybe talk about new, uh, hitting St. Petersburg or right, something. To justify nuclear holocaust. Like, what? Well, that's- like, how is that in my interest? How is that in the national interest of the... I mean... Yeah, we we, we have be- done we have done an episode on on the whole Russia. Yeah, we can beat that into the thing, dead horse but forever. But it is it, it is, is it case. does bear repeating that the notion of siding with that it is in the interest of whites, white mm-hmm. people in Europe and America to side with Ukraine, uh, whatever country that Zog is goading into a war with Russia that we ought to side with them because they're nationalists there or because because Russia has Jews in it like I mean okay so well, uh, because Russia like whatever we're not saying you have to love Vladimir Putin but it is in the interest I think it's quite clear it is in the interest of whites in America and in Western Europe to not be having wars in these countries yeah so like 
whenever a war is being had, it's because it's in the interest of Zog and of the military industrial complex. Like this is fucking obvious. Right. It's nothing to do with And it's a point that like not only is it a point that right wingers understand, because like you talk to working class men and politics comes up, generally speaking, they're gonna be like, Yeah, I don't know about this Ukraine shit. You know, it's all it's all the fucking liberals who are waving the Ukraine flag outside their houses. Oh yeah. And you talk Because it's always it's always flown us to a rainbow flag. Every single time. It's a Ukraine flag and a rainbow flag. (laughs) An anecdotal, but I found a, I, I had a strange interaction a few weeks ago with uh, a guy at this gas station. He was clearly working class. Yep. He was wearing a, a, a like a, a Russian uh, Yushanka hat with the, with the <laughs> communist red star on it. <laughs> what? And he's like a communist or he's LARPing as one. I'm like, I was being polite. I like, I'm like, okay, sure. Right, right, right. Was he just it. LARPing because of the Z thing to like troll? No, no, no. Uh, I, well, that's what I thought. But I was like, maybe he's just trolling the lip shits. Like, that's pretty funny. Right. Um, and I respect it. He was like, his position was that communism is not what Stalin made it and that people don't understand what communism is. Now, like, oh, okay, it's we, we'll, not, we'll, we'll not fucking, real communism. No, like, and, not to yeah. not to knock the guy, because like yeah. I understood like this is a guy who actually fucking thinks about things. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> this is I can respect this guy more than like a dumb shit like conservative boomer because this guy actually thinks about things. And, you know, he probably hasn't heard about Hitler and stuff, so right. he hasn't ever really considered it. Right. But like he understood this leftist or ostensible leftist right. understood that like he's like yeah the military industrial complex like I, I don't think we should be spending it on you know on Ukraine or like it's dumb right like this fucking commie and I could agree on that uh, on that what but a Fox News guy on the other hand right no it's not in the I mean the whole notion of like you see the system doing this propaganda and we're getting a little bit off topic here but you see the system doing this propaganda where it encourages sympathy for eastern european countries Mm. just like yeah i don't if you really are sympathetic with eastern european countries if you really give a shit about georgia or finland or ukraine or whatever you should be like yo why the fuck is zog starting war there why is my country the country for which i am theoretically politically responsible i mean you know assume this is a democracy right of course (laughs) assume all the fictions are true that we live in a democracy does that make does that make sense or am i like I've no. There's no reason to have nuclear weapons from the United States and Scandinavia. There's none. There's none. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, my, the real question, or my question, is like, what did, what did, the Turks get for Finland to be allowed into NATO? Something big. Like, what did they get? What did they get? Well, they got something. No, they got it, something it was, really it, good. It, well, because like, have have they ratified Sweden's yet? No. Nah. Okay, so that's the that's the big one that the Turks don't like is the Swedes. Oh, okay. So like. I I was I wasn't surprised that they allowed well, Sweden Finland doesn't in. fucking matter. Finland has a huge border with Russia. That was right. the valuable one. Fin- but, Sweden well, is like whatever. Sweden has the bigger. Well, no, Finland has a bigger military than Sweden does. I'm pretty sure. It doesn't matter. Regardless. I don't I don't give a shit about. Don't talk to me about how many ski battalions they have. <laughs> their, their border is bigger. You can plant some armored divisions and some missiles right. on that border that's, with Russia. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but no. So like I'm I. I, I would have been surprised more so had they ratified Sweden's lickety split like they did Finland's. Because, yeah. like, Turkey and Sweden have this problem with the PKK and all that other fun stuff with the Kurdistan Workers' Party and all that other fun shit or whatever. So, mm-hmm. it's it's all – that is – it's it is some of the most irrelevant politics <laughs> in all the world right now is the reason why Turkey is butt mad at Sweden and won't allow them to join NATO. Like, that, right. that, bit, of, that bit of politics is so backwater and un – Unre- like it's just irrelevant to the 
<laughs> to all geopolitics in the world because it doesn't even play anything to to straits or or to to uh, the the new. Well, I just I, I love speculating China about and Russia or anything else like that. We all love speculating, but I love speculating about like what I mean. Did they add more girls to his harem? Did they, Sweden- send, did they send him like a pile of hash? I mean, what what does the Grand Turk Roach want that he got to get Finland and NATO? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Maybe maybe they uh, I don't know. Maybe they foiled a, a nationalist plot to reconquer Constantinople or something <laughs> in, in in Venice for all places. Right? <laughs> uh, um, no, I've I've no idea because like they did it overnight, right? Like if if we're talking about that, and this this actually does kind of like play into this as far as. Uh, how this how the world works uh and 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 how we're able to win over uh the the leftists in our own country right so we're talking this bring this back to, to the point right for for mein Kampf of, of the whole uh try to target uh the left try to win over the leftists go after antifa go off these other these other groups um the thing that we can actually sit down and agree with uh even most radical leftists is that global war is probably not the best idea Right. right, but do we? Uh, but define carefully here, because nobody's talking about sitting down with fucking leftists. But right. who who are you talking about? I mean, is are we talking about? Is there somebody in the leftist coalition that we actually care about? Because I mean, we're we're working class. Like that's yeah, that is the target audience. Well, I would honestly say that like now, now this is this is going to sound like out on a limb, and I'm not sure what the population this is. We have to with the to really get a, a number on this, but there's a large percentage of working class children in universities these days true because work you know, right we talked we, we mentioned yeah. this last time yeah, yeah. The, because of the how many people are being pushed to take on debt and go into college right you have tons of working class people or people who otherwise and are were grew up or I will become working class who are in college and college is not just a there's a brainwashing uh, mechanism for sure 100%. yeah but this is why they were so now now you know, this is this is. I'm not bringing up any anything whatsoever. But this was why the system considered Richard Spencer's uh, tours at universities such a threat. No, oh, of course. And because again, you get you get university students in your in their first year or the the the, the whatever the other student uh, things were doing mm-hmm. the Trump thing and all that crap. Uh, if you get your, if you if you can get to those working class students in their first year or two and reinforce their parents' teachings on them, it, yeah, right, politically, they will then again carry the. When the it's next really two hard to. It's really hard to legally prevent anybody from going and uh, going to college campuses. Right. I mean, there's legally. there's all kinds of ways they've come up with to do it. Right. And it's, um, it's but it is it's voice. still it's you're supposed to have free speech. These are supposed to be public institutions. Blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. It would the, the bottom line is it would take organization to it would take a minimum of organization forethought to get nationalist speakers. Or posters, or or, or uh, handouts, or whatever, right. onto university campuses, and it would be very difficult for the system to fight it. Because I mean, if you had a fucking minimum of organization, right? Not just like oh, we booked it and we're showing up, right? You have to have a little more than that. With <laughs> you got to have a little. You got to have a game plan, right? Um, but that that's that's kind of the thing there, though, is that that you can like you can uh, within the leftist mentality of things, you get after their centers of procreation. Their 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 ability to um mm-hmm. to reproduce is in the universities for the most part, right? It's like uh, Hitler again says it in Mein Kampf where he talks about um about the concept of breeding leadership also and how that's that's um comparable. Well, I think to, you're onto something here with universities. Yeah, that that is the breeding ground, the 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 weak spot because that's where you're getting that cross section right of 
a lot of working class people, and you're getting a lot of people who are going to turn out to be lefties Mm. who could be brought into an alternative before they become lefties. Very much so. I, now let me let me go back a little bit and not say necessarily university. When people think university, they think Ivy Leagues or whatever. Use the time. No, 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 no. I community college. Yeah, right. might be the best option, right? Mm-hmm. So, and because community college is the perfect one, because you are, you you still have um, uh, trade trade uh, schools at some community colleges, right. right, or programs at least for trade. So you do have that that not just cross section of uh, the working class, but a legitimate population of legitimate working class individuals that are training to go back into the working class. Um, so yeah, I'd say didn't community- Matt Heimbach start uh, TWP at montgomery college or it was one of the maryland schools oh i'm not sure maybe it's umbc or uh um yes it was it was a maryland public school well there you go so yeah you can do state colleges state colleges another one that's pretty easy to go to but that's getting a little higher up community colleges though i think are probably the better target just because of of that crossover of what where you're going to get as far as the the legitimate working class and trying to stay working class by getting you know uh schooled in working class arts all right. Well, that that does, I think, answer that question nicely. The uh, moving on to number eight, mm-hmm. the goal of a political reform movement will never be reached by enlightenment work or by influencing ruling circles, but only by the achievement of political power. This is where he, he contradicts Calgary's mentality. Yes. Every world moving idea has not only the right, but also the duty of securing those means which make possible the execution of its ideas success is the only earthly judge concerning the right or wrong of such an effort and under success we must not understand as in the year 1918 the achievement of power in itself but an exercise of that power that will benefit the nation so that last distinction achievement of power of itself but an exercise of power what he's talking about specifically is things like trump versus hitler (laughs) <laughs> Trump is or any any Republican any vote for me because we need to get the right wing guy in party in, in power because the Democrats are going to be even worse and it's too we have two bad choices therefore we need to get the right wing guy I in power achievement of power itself thing. getting I don't care if you if I were elected president tomorrow it wouldn't mean shit like I might be a fanatical Hitlerite but I couldn't do shit even with all my beliefs my open and honest beliefs and my natural charisma and yours too like <laughs> yeah. we couldn't do shit no uh we couldn't do anything because of that we don't have the ability to exercise that power for the benefit of the nation and that's why you need the movement yeah that's yeah thus a coup d'etat must not be regarded as successful if as senseless as the state's attorneys in germany think today the revolutionaries have succeeded in possessing themselves of state power but only if, by the realization of the purposes and aims underlying such a revolutionary action, more benefit accrues to the nation than under the past regime. So, he, in a way, he's criticizing his own 1923 action here. He's right. saying, like, we, what we did in, in 1923, you know, even if we had succeeded, it wouldn't have meant anything unless we could implement our program. There's also the – this is a, a critique that he's – that's um – he doesn't really bring it up too often, but it, he alludes to it a few times. This is a perfect – the perfect example for what he just said is the French Revolution, mm-hmm. um, where while the old regime sucked, the new regime sucked worse, right? Like, uh, which, to to which be mundane about this. Which are you relating this to? Uh, the, the passages you just 
that you just said, or the, the possessing themselves of state power, but only by realization of the purposes and aims underlying such a revolutionary action, more benefit accrues to the nation than underlying the past regime. And so when you had uh-huh. the reign of blood right afterwards, right, or the reign of terror, um, immediately following the fall of the Bourbon, uh, the Bourbon monarchy, you didn't see any improvement in state uh, actions whatsoever, right? Until after this point, like they, you really didn't see any improvement, in right? Napoleon. Yeah, okay. I mean, he, he, yeah. the example he gives is the next sentence: something which cannot very well be claimed for the German Revolution as the gangster job of autumn 1918 calls itself. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Ushering in Weimar, right? So, like, it, it became yeah. absolutely worse than what was happening before. Even that, the, the claim is, we're going to make it better, and you just make it worse. And that was the same thing with Robespierre and all those other guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that is an issue that would be, that's what we want to avoid that as well. If we if, if there is to be a national, and we'll say revolution in a sense, and not necessarily obviously bloody or whatever, you know, but like... like a revolution by legal means. Right, of course. Uh, so in any type of revolution of that sense, I uh, you have to be able to you have to be able to deliver on your promises. So you have to be able to actually deliver a proper regime. You have to be able to have the systems in like you know basically in place to be able to take over. And you can't do that without a mass movement. You can't do that without having all the means. Yeah, because the mass movement there. is the government in waiting. In effect, you've right. got you've got your uh, your leadership of the army is the the SA leadership, for instance. Well, I guess Hitler didn't do that, but right. uh, bad example. Uh, you have your well, nat- still, National Socialist Transportation Corps. Well, okay, so you have all these. You have hundreds of guys across Germany who are drivers who are organized in the National Socialist Transportation yeah. Corps. Then, uh, but you're going to start attracting. Well, people let me finish. In power. Uh, oh, sorry. The, the guy who's in charge of that, you're probably going to appoint your your transportation minister. Right. Like it yeah. just makes sense. You have the the organ of government in miniature. The yeah. guy who's in charge of your of your legal section, who's fighting all the Jews in the courts again and again and again. Well, well, put him at Department of Justice. Yeah, he knows what he's doing clearly. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's the because uh, also with with the movement becoming more and more massive, right? Is you're going to tra- also attract people that already have talents in these in these fields that you're going to need to fill anyway, right? Um, right, you're 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 gonna start attracting some powerful figures to an already powerful movement. People like to follow the strong man anyway, um, and obviously you would you would do that with scrutiny, right? You don't want to just bring in traitors effectively that people that'll turn coat at the at the slightest you know winds. Right, of but as the movement's rising, it's it's you know even when like in the case of na- the National Socialist Movement, you're twenty percent of the country supports you, maybe two percent, three percent actually are actively involved, uh, maybe less. Yeah. But like the people that are coming to you, even though you're relatively popular, it's still dangerous. So you're you're pretty sure that the people who are coming over aren't just careerists. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, you, you basically you start off, you have the absolute minimum of careerists. The people <laughs> who are there in the room the first like time, those people, <laughs> those people are fucking nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you're 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 a little bit bigger. You're gonna get some people who are like, oh, okay, oh gee, uh, I think this might actually go somewhere. Right. I'm gonna. It's like a, it's like buying stock. You're buying stock in a political movement. Well, these people, eh, they're actually going to go somewhere. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll take a, I'll take a bet out on them, and maybe I'll be minister of uh, education or something. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll be ambassador to Siam. Who knows? Park, park minister. <laughs> yeah, but and and that's so you know, you will eventually attract more and more people. It snowballs, right? It's a snowball effect kind of thing. That's what he's getting at. I'd imagine. Okay, so. Uh, I think he backs your point up here. Yeah. If the achievement of political power constitutes the precondition for a practical execution of reform purposes, the movement with reform purposes 
must, from the first day of its existence, feel itself a movement of the masses and not a literary tea club or a shopkeeper's bowling society. (laughs) (laughs) Very true, though. Yeah, okay, so. Because, again, you don't want to have a drinking club. Well, he's he's actually, I think he, drinking club, we have to we have to rank our 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 club life with the lowest form. Oh, uh, oh of course. Uh, <laughs> T club is literary T club. I think is a little bit lower and more useless than the drinking club. At least in the drinking mm. club, you got like, you know, every, bros like drinking and hanging out. Like that's true, true. Uh, you know, you obviously have to go beyond that. I'm joking somewhat, but like literary T club is really bottom or at the very <laughs> bottom here. Oh, have you heard that the the uh, the social democrats are uh, winning in uh, Silesia. Ah. Oh, pour yeah. another round right. of Who gray. gives a fuck? <laughs> gives a fuck. The social democrats are winning. Like you're, you're losers. Yeah. Right. Number nine. Mm-hmm. And this is where Hitler gets into organization. And then he comes back to it with 11. Uh, part 11, which we will hopefully, we will definitely get to. We're going to have to cram it in. Right. Uh, the young movement is in its nature and inner organization against parliamentary politics. That is, it rejects in general and in its own inner structure a principle of majority rule in which the leader is de- uh, degraded to the level of mere executive of other people's will and opinion. So Hitler throughout this is arguing for, uh, think of like the primitive Germanic tribe and how that would have been organized. Think of uh, Arminius or, I don't know, Alaric the Goth. You're supposed to have a leader who is popularly acclaimed by the tribe. And he's also like, it's, it, it isn't just, it's not Stalin. He's not a total dictator. He is, there's, and there's no parliamentarianism. You're just picking one person to have full political responsibility. Right. And if he isn't up to the job, then you can push him out or he can, he, he was obliged to step down. Really. Right. Yeah. And, and so like, this is often misunderstood. So let's let's go through a little bit more. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead here. He makes the decisions and hence bears the responsibility on his shoulders, the leader. Members of the movement are free to call him to account before the forum of a new election to divest him of his office insofar as he has infringed on the principles of the movement or served its interests badly. His place is then taken by an abler new man enjoying, however, the same authority and the same responsibility. So... It, it goes both ways. You need to have total loyalty to the to the group. But if the leadership isn't actually doing it and isn't living up to its responsibility to the community, then it should not be in the leadership. Right. It's absolute. It's yeah. it's you have a um, I hate to use this term because it has a very bad taste in most people's mouths, but it's it's closer to a constitutional monarchy. It's it's more like a it's a social contract monarchy, really. Like you have a – and well, I, I use the word monarchy very lightly because I know a lot of people take that as like feudalistic concepts. But we let's mean by stick rule, to that. Let's stick rule to by the, one. Let's stick to the fourth century example, shall we? Right, right. Sorry. <laughs> you have a uh, warlord. He's right. The, yeah. He's the guy. Everyone agrees. Yeah, this guy actually like kills Romans and stuff. We're, <laughs> we're, we're following him, Alaric, Attila. Arminius, um, yeah. Arminius, whatever. Mm. We're following that guy because – He's the one. He killed kill Roman good. He, yeah, and, he, and we know that he'll fucking die in the field with us. Yeah. And he'll take all of, all of the – he'll lead from the front. All those things that a leader is supposed to do and that, you know, you've been indoctrinated with if you – you know, people who were in the military get indoctrinated with this uh, lead from the front and like uh, lead, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, lead by example and blah, blah, blah. Yep. Good. It's, all, it's all important. 
It is one of the highest tasks of the movement to make this principle determining not only within its own ranks, but for the entire state. So you have to organize your own movement on this sort of warlord principle, right. primitive organization, uh, very rough and ready, but very clear and yet also responsible is balanced right you have to do that for yourselves and then when you get into government you have to implement that policy even if you're still pretending that there's a parliament like the germans did like oh yeah we have the reichstag blah blah, blah. like <laughs> you're just gonna stack the reichstag with the people who i mean as hitler did stack it with people who supported the movement and who don't really have any other purpose they're just good people it's more of like an honorary thing yeah like all right we're you're cool you get to sit in the reichstag and you'll hear a speech and you get to clap and you we'll, we'll tell you which way to vote don't worry about it yeah <laughs> makes your life easy as all hell <laughs> which honestly that's the way it should be it'd be so easy <laughs> like, could you imagine a better job honestly it's like what, is, what do you what do you do for a profession i uh i fill a reichstag seat <laughs> i get paid to vote <laughs> the way they tell me all right yeah uh as i read this think of some counter examples because this is like really choice uh for american politics any man who wants to be leader bears, along with the highest unlimited authority, also the ultimate and heaviest responsibility. Mm. Anyone who is not equal to this or is too cowardly to bear the consequences of his acts is not fit to be leader. Only the hero is cut out for this. That's uh, the Frederick the Great quote there is that the, ki the king is his first servant of the state. Mm -hmm. So counterexamples. Uh, I'll just say it. Trump. <laughs> Trump, Trump, Trump. This is totally Trump. Too cowardly to bear the consequences of his acts. So January 6th, mm -hmm. Donald Trump tells everybody the election's illegitimate. Okay, well, the logical, if the election is illegitimate, if you, Donald Trump, are indeed the legitimate president and you have been screwed out of an election, as he claimed, therefore, you have to lead a coup. Yeah. And if people decide to go and as they did... Uh, and even if we don't take it that far, maybe that's taking it too far. Even if people say, okay, well, the president, my president tells me that the, go that the government, the election was conducted fraudulently and no one, there's no, the courts aren't doing anything about it. The, the government doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. The president's telling me, the fucking leader's telling me that right. it's fucked. Uh, therefore, I should protest. Well, right. you protest and, you know, they have the whole January 6th thing, uh, which perfectly reasonable and given given what given the circumstances given right. given the assumptions that you are operating under that the government the election was illegitimate therefore doing a protest is about the like minimum thing you should be doing right yeah like, <laughs> like showing face in the street <laughs> and the the way why i'm criticizing trump specifically is because it's i mean i've made this criticism of him before it's that if people go and protest and even if the protest gets kind of violent as it did it, it, it doesn't amount to a crime uh, a treason the way that the uh system is portraying it and you getting thrown in prison having all your rights taken away for years on end and being tortured these things don't seem to be just no. you as the leader trump like even if you let's let's give him the benefit of the doubt let's say he thinks hmm. that some people went too far okay right. maybe they went a little bit too far but don't you think that they're being treated unjustly right yes obviously uh, you as the leader need to go and do something. Why why doesn't he provide uh money for their lawyers? Right. It would be trivial for him to do that. It would be utterly trivial. I mean, for him to go and provide money for their lawyers. I mean, he could even say, okay, I think this guy actually did something wrong and should be in prison, but like all these other people didn't. Like, even if he wanted to be a uh, a jackass about it, right. you do it that way. But he's not doing any of that because he's a complete fraud. Trump is a complete fraud. You know, a good juxtaposition to Trump is like it's, it's almost like a one for one, almost identical of what's happening between Trump and this other guy 
Imran Khan from Pakistan. Oh, okay, right. Like, is Khan is actually a leader, or yeah, okay. Like, it's, he's you know, it's almost the the you know anti the antithesis of Trump, right? Like, mm-hmm. he actually does have a movement with lawyers and everything else to get his guys to get arrested by the government out, right? And like, you know, they do throw protests, and um, there's almost like it's almost kicking off a civil war currently, which is not good for Pakistan. Um, but is uh, Imran Khan the anti-Zog guy or the pro-Zog guy? He was the anti-Zog. Like okay. he was, nice. it, yeah. He he was he was ousted not too long ago um, through like a totally somebody funded the other opposition, you know, people kind of thing. I'm you know, rolling my eyes, right? Really I know hard. Yeah, so Imran, like Imran Khan, honestly, should be. He's like he's like the he's basically the popular leader of Pakistan. That's why he gets so much support. Um, but he actually does stuff for his people and whatnot to the point where they'll defend his home to the bitter end kind of thing uh-huh. against the government forces that are coming to arrest him and whatnot constantly. You know, when 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 Khan says, hey, uh, this government is illegitimate, and he says it all the time, across the current, he's like, hey, this is an illegitimate government. Everybody descend on uh, Islamabad and protest, right? Everybody just do it. And they do it. And they and he takes full responsibility it, and to the point where his house gets raided by the government kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And he's just like, keep fighting. <laughs> and yeah. Like, keep going. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, like they'll be able to destroy my house and uh, they'll destroy pictures of my kids and everything else like that, but they can't destroy our spirit or whatever the hell else. And he actually he doubles down he keeps going with it what did trump do he got he's like oh well time to get in the armored car and run away real quick yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know like and the funny thing is with uh, these american politicians uh right-wing politicians you know we can criticize them for not being willing to die because that's what hitler says they need to be able to they need to be willing to die yeah um and suffer any consequence for their what they say is their political belief but What's even funnier in their case is like they're not even willing to spend money. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, even really if they are not still making money in the case of Trump or, or uh, Tucker Carlson, if they're not actually increasing their net wealth, or their wealth, then they're like, eh, not not going to not going to go there. Well, I mean, it, we can actually we can actually do this from the opposition point of view too. Biden and the leftists. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like well does anybody pick a that's not fair like that's not fair to lefties like come on like nobody actually believes in biden let's be real well right Uh, fair but uh, as far as his rhetoric is concerned uh, right or commie commie jew guy um bernie sanders which one oh yeah oh yo yeah sanders is a a phenomenal one oh i just need you to give me money one more time and then i might win and it's like and then he just gives it away or just spends it on more houses or whatever real estate he's doing in his new cars and everything else like that he's a total swindler um or you know this is another funny one, uh, and she doesn't get enough heat, and she should. Ocasio Cortez, she oh yeah, she's rode, a piece of shit. She is totally. She she rode. She's not even all hot. the top. No, she's people not. are saying that she's hot. And she's not hot. She only got she into looks politics. Like a donkey. Well, she also has like a uh, like a very white presenting Jewish boyfriend, and she talks all this Ugh, shit on white ew. males, and it's like, what do you really think is hot, lady? Come on, you know. And so, but the thing is that she she rode the the coattails of the whole you know my feminist movements or the, my new neo feminism and my whole LGBT and all of the crap. And then as soon as she gets into office or whatever, she plays the game, but she just you know. She doesn't actually deliver. She doesn't care about her, her consistency. Yeah, the only lefty uh, politician who had any principles was, was it uh, Ilhan, Tala, was it Ilhan Omar? Oh, Ilhan Omar, yeah, because the Jew thing. <laughs> I have all my respect for her. Even uh, though she's, no, she's a total... for Ilhan Omar? Yeah, she's a total oh, piece of shit, too. But, like, she... The, the whole the whole being barred from committees because of the anti-Semitic thing is, like, pretty funny. <laughs> so, well, she's uh, clearly pro-Somali. Right, yeah, you know? So, I, what, Ed, you, go figure. She yeah, it was from, shocking. Yeah, shocking. like, wow. A, a Somali would be pro-Somali. Yeah, I, like, I, wow. can't, I just can't I, understand. <laughs> it's so foreign. 
Don't they believe in, in international principles of solidarity? Yeah, they totally do. The Horn of Africa, totally different meaning over there. <laughs> uh, Wrapping up this part, uh, hence the movement is against parliaments. Hmm. And even its participation in a parliamentary institution can only imply activity for its destruction. Mm -hmm. For eliminating institution in which we see, uh, we must see one of the gravest symptoms of mankind's decay. Could not agree more. <laughs> I could not agree right. More. So, like, the idea of, you hear people say this sometimes, well, we should get one person elected into Congress because then we have a platform. It's like, I, I agree with that. Like, yeah. by all means, try to get a guy elected into Congress um, just so that you can you have a get, a, get attention. Yeah, you have a soapbox at you, that point. Right. And get attention for your movement, whatever. But don't think for a second that like getting uh, getting 20 people into Congress so that you can propose a certain bill and build a coalition to pass the bill. Fuck that. Right. Fuck and, that. And then all of a sudden it's all better randomly and then we have our American democracy back and blah, blah. Like, what? No. <laughs> it's not like work. the only reason you should – or, or actually here's a more relevant one mm. is the movement. There's a movement right now that's – somewhat successful uh might might actually succeed to call a constitutional convention hmm. i forget what it's called it's but they have in order to call a constitutional convention in the u.s you have to have i think it's two-thirds of the state legislatures both uh chambers have to have a majority vote you have to have a majority vote in two chambers of two-thirds of all states in the country in order to call a constitutional convention now what you can actually do at a constitutional convention is somewhat indeterminate because it's never happened since 1789, 88, whatever. Uh, so no one really knows. But in theory, it seems the way the Constitution's written that you could just write a new Constitution. You could just tear up the old one and write a new one. Be like not not such just a massive turn of events. not just propose amendments. I mean, people think you can just propose amendments. No, you can you can propose amendments. I mean, there's different ways to do constitutional amendments in the United States. It's either constitutional convention or approval by Congress by various difficult means. But you can call a constitutional convention and throw out the government or throw out the old Constitution, write a new one. Theoretically. This movement, which is, of course, backed by a Jew or Jew is the main guy. I, I don't know. I looked it up. I forget the names. It <laughs> doesn't surprise I, I, my, I have a problem mem remembering details because like I just conclude like, oh, da -da -da -da, OK, Jew. Right. <laughs> um, I really should remember the detail because it would give more credibility to my claim that so-and-so is a Jew. But I, I, I don't mean, know. Look it up. Like, yeah. prove me wrong. I, if I'm wrong, I'll be like, OK, it wasn't a Jew that time. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one time oh, it wasn't. Oh, boy. But anyway, that movement is going to be is fake and gay, of course. So right. it's going to, you know, like, well, we need to have a amendment to protect gun rights and amendments to uh, ensure I don't know, they have a whole program and it's all fake. It's all procedural crap, like mm -hmm. the same shit the Republicans are always uh, on about. If you're doing this in the Hitler way, you're building a movement to ins it, install a new constitution. <laughs> you have your constitutional written. And your constitution says, we're doing Nazism, we're doing this, we're doing that, uh, and we're going to, like, participate in this process because we have to. But, like, as soon as we actually have the convention and we know that we're going to win, we're, Rewrite we're, we're, stuff. We're, we're, we're destroying the ability to have constitutional conventions ever again. And we're getting rid of Congress because it's fake and gay. Fake and gay. <laughs> Parliamentarianism is fake and gay. Yeah. Uh, 
This okay. anti-democracy gang here, guys. Yeah, do you have anything else you want to say on parliamentarianism, either within... I could I could rant for eons about... Oh, give me, give me your works. hottest take, or your oh. most I don't, I, I don't, incisive comments. Considering some of my hottest takes about this type of thing come from, like, the Marquita Sade and stuff might be too spicy for this show, but... <laughs> Fucking perv. <laughs> Fucking French. <laughs> um... But no, so yeah, it's as far as the anti-parliamentarian thing comes to, to being, it does speak to the the concept of the hierarchy of of nature, right? Like there there is a natural hierarchy of things. Um, f- the whole idea of following a, a warlord is the same thing as following an alpha, right, within a pack. Mm-hmm. Um, so the point of this is that it's trying to, and this is why Hitler talks about earlier the earlier point where he goes says and goes goes back to the the origin point, the ur point for the understanding of the propaganda for the for the the root population right it comes down to this as well what do people naturally understand they understand the will of the strong they understand follow the leader uh they understand these these natural primeval you know building blocks of civilization and he, he mentions that a few times go back to what builds these things i don't know if we have, i don't know if we get to that in, in point 11 or not or the other part uh where he says that it doesn't matter if you're in a democracy or a monarchy or anything else like that you have to go back to building the foundational root civilizational aspects that could be even used to build a democracy or a monarchy or whatever right like the, the fundamental aspects of civilization so he's talking about going back to like the root of evolution of of of, of society uh, with this kind of thing, it's like, yeah, we don't need to vote. We didn't do that. It's just like the strong man leads, and that just says how it is, right? And but it's like a collective. Not it's not ruled by tyranny either. It's a collectivization. It's 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 socialism, national socialism, right? So the social aspect to it is that we all collectively agree through social contract. Um, and social contract is one of the uh, one of the good things that came out of the uh, the Enlightenment period. Uh, is that we all agree that this guy can run everything. And he says it earlier, right? Like with all the powers that he could possibly have. I don't think Hitler ever used the word social contract. He doesn't. He doesn't. This is like how an Anglo lawyer has to try to understand basic, uh, you know, (laughs) how teams work. Right. Yeah. (laughs) What is leader? He is like guy who gives me contract. (laughs) So I therefore respect him because contract. Well, you have to to justify all this thing. But the the social, he he doesn't say social contract, but I'd say that it was very much present at the time of all the other literature for socialism up throughout the 1800s. It's like this basis concept from the enlightenment period uh, where you have, uh, who, which one was it? Was it, was it John Loki? What? Locke. Oh wait, Locke was the one who did the social contract. Or was Rousseau? Oh shit, right. Uh, Locke. Was it Rousseau or was it? Um, it doesn't matter. Or I mean, it, it's the like other the other Frenchman. Rousseau was. Um, let's be animals again. And uh, Loki was divided. Government. Locke. Loki. Right. <laughs> call him Loki because it's funny. Uh, divided government and social. You're right. The social contract is. I think it was Rousseau. Rousseau. Yeah. Or the other Frenchman that was his contemporary. I can't remember his name. Voltaire. Voltaire. It was either Voltaire or Rousseau was who wrote the social contract. But the point of the the point of it, and I know this gets a lot of bad rap in our in our circles of things, but the idea of and Frederick so Frederick the Great was really big. I, I mentioned this before in a few other episodes, was really big into the social contract type of thing, uh, and this enlightenment type of rulership. Hitler idolized Frederick and we can infer from what he means by this is the exact same concepts that he was talking about before, is that the leader voluntarily undergoes a social contract with the population and by his merit, according to that that social contract, then rules to the best of his ability and or steps down, right? As Hitler says, like has to abdicate 
aka his throne or his position or whatever else to step yeah. down for somebody who would be able to rule better and that goes with the social contract of the 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 ruling class that that comes up for this or whoever is in charge of, of this is that they they then say okay this guy is not fit for rulership we're all going to collectively say bro step down hopefully in an ideal situation dude steps down right and then you replace him with somebody else that's that's according to the rest of the social grouping so you have this this it is a symbiotic relationship between an absolute rule or absolutism in a sense and and your body politic which then holds a social contract uh, uh, not against that but but kind of with that so you have like this this melding and that also goes to what he was saying is a melding of classes is that you have the the king while while you might have a king or whatever you want to term you want to use for it or a fuhrer you have a fuhrer but at the same time the fuhrer is while absolute he is not outside of law he's not outside and that's that's again another enlightenment concept egalitarianism it's everybody's equal under the rule of law the king has to has to abide by the same rules of law that, that the peasant does right or the in this case the fuhrer and the working class man have the exact same rules and obligations to society that they have to deal with and if if the leader is not in, in conjunction with that he must step down or abdicate so would you say that louis the 16th was violating the social contract by <laughs> Uh, I don't know, whatever he was doing, having parties at Versailles and ice sculptures and fornicating. Well, okay, so now that we're going back to France, though, because as we know, France Th- is Doesn't anomaly. that seem like a violent... I mean, think of Hitler sleeping on... It, it was worse, though. A, ...a common soldier's bed throughout the war. Like, that seems... Yeah. That seems to conform to what a leader is supposed to do. He's in a... Yeah, lead by example and, like, generally not take advantage of your position on, like, yeah. you know, powdered wig guy. Well, right, you know, and so he was he was arguably one of and the thing is I feel bad for, for Fat Louis calves, the 16th. stockings guy. That's fourteenth. Same thing. No. <laughs> well, no. They both did that though, didn't they? Well, okay, fair. But <laughs> um Louis the Fourteenth had arguably better cloaks than uh, Louis the Sixteenth. So. No, sorry, God, th- you've brought me on this tangent. Uh-huh. Louis the Fourteenth, did you know it was the French uh under Louis the Fourteenth who attacked the Holy Roman Empire when the uh, after the Turks were driven back from Vienna in 1683, the Austrians were pursuing the Turks into well into the Balkans and like smashing them back, freed Hungary, uh, freed freed Belgrade. And then the fucking French, the <laughs> ultimate ally of the Grand Turk Road, came and invaded the uh, you know Alsace and Lorraine. That's when Alsace and Lorraine happened. Louis the Fourteenth. Oh, so and that's they had to call. Fell. They had to st- stall their offensive against the Turk roaches, uh, and the Turks were able to take Belgrade back and enslave it for another two hundred, two hundred years, whatever. Oh my god! And move Austrian forces to go fight the French in Alsace and Lorraine. And then the French had the temerity to cry about Alsace and Lorraine, le France perdu, blah blah blah, like all that. Is because of the sun. All King. because, all because Louis the Fourteenth fat calves yeah. decided to invade <laughs> Germany right when white people were finally getting one in on the Turks. God damn it, Europe! <laughs> it's like one fuck up after French, another. French Revolution know. did nothing wrong. Hot take. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> See, well, it's the, France. France is the anomaly. Like all kinds of fucked up stuff always happens in France for the yeah, politics. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the, what yeah. we were just what we were just discussing for a second there, though, that what you had asked um, about the the social contract of the french or whatever was 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 louis the 16th violating the social contract they had vi- like they the french wrote the social contract because of the violations of the social contract that their monarchy was conducting oh um and that's like the whole thing is that like and, and that's but they also if you notice 
the Germans, the German monarchy was not violating social contracts whatsoever. That's why the French uh, right. it's hard to, went it's, over it's there. Imp- it's hard to think of a Prussian king. You can't think of a Prussian king who is ever as much of a mm, whatever despot, just despot, yeah, yeah, as as any of the French kings. No, there is no comparison, or English for that matter. Like the Germ- the Germanic way of things was was the right way of doing things, which is why World War Two was such a tragedy. Um, but the, the thing is, is that so you had um, you had the, the the French aristocracy or the French bourgeoisie. Really, the, the bourgeoisie is the real class that we have to look at here, because the aristocracy and bourgeoisie were two different classes uh, in France at the time. And so you had at the top, you had your monarchy and nobility, then your aristocracy, then your bourgeoisie, and then you had your your various levels of proletariat. Um, but the reason why it was so screwed up, I. And then why there was no there was there was no social contract really to be had, and it's because Louis the Sixteenth tried his damnedest to actually tax the bourgeoisie because they were tax exempt up to this point from the time of Versailles, um, and they were the ones who had the most wealth that were that would have been able to bring France out of the economic uh, depression that it was in at the time, right? And but instead of and but he had to play versailles cat and mouse right with the the bourgeoisie and he couldn't technically tax them otherwise they'd be upset and and they would leave all of his gambling games right and they wouldn't like they would take all of his tennis balls right they would like not play games right they wouldn't they wouldn't play ball or they wouldn't attend his parties or whatever right some some ridiculous nonsense would happen um and they because they the bourgeois did the bourgeoisie didn't have like the ability to create a mass movement which is why Louis the Sixteenth failed so hard is that he failed to recognize how powerless the bourgeoisie actually was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you still had industrialists that could have then obviously backed the bourgeoisie, which is what eventually happened. Is the industrialist had his marriage with the bourgeoisie um, because of this taxation type of marriage where they both wanted to get out of it, right? Like obviously okay. your eternal merchant always wants to get out of taxes, right? The bourgeoisie didn't have to pay taxes, so they made this merger together to have this this middleman type of revolution uh, you know and then it, it's they they brought up the fervor of of the the proletariat but again it was it was completely and it was it was also an evolution of it too because again as you had as you had the industrialization of europe throughout the 1700s right or like the towards the, the mid to late the middle the late 1700s um you had the ability for your industrialists to make again more on one acre of land than an aristocrat could make on a hundred and so the aristocrats and the nobility were easily pushed out of the economic model and so the bourgeoisie who didn't pay taxes and wanted to cozy up to other people who didn't want to pay taxes but these bourgeoisie had power circles up to the nobility you had this marriage between the rich now the now rich industrialists and the corrupt bourgeoisie that created this kind of maelstrom in france at the time okay and then because then i imagine the aristocrats the landed aristocrats would team up with the peasantry they yeah that was a originally the idea Uh right and that's that was they but the thing is though is that at the time and that 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 happened a few times throughout european history where you have like the ability for them to to curtail the the issue of bourgeois or this bourgeois element because this has been written about for god thousands of years at this point where you have like this 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 restless middle class kind of thing right but unfortunately i at the time because of the ability for the industrialists to have control over their workers, right, and the, the monetary power over the, the the proletariat, they were able to have this kind of melder where they they roused both, you know, both the, the proletariat, the bourgeoisie, the industrialist classes against the aristocracy and nobility, and then you had this beheading festival, right, uh, where they just basically eradicated the entirety of the aristocrats uh, from from French life. But then, but then the proletariat realized what they had just done, and they gave the power over to some people that were absolutely worse. That was, you know, the the, the whole issue with Robespierre and whatnot, or the industrial. Yeah, I mean, oh, look, I mean, 
decade of pain or whatever and yeah. uh, <laughs> head chopping and they got napoleon so well, yeah but really <laughs> <laughs> but then but the see france never recuperated from that unfortunately they never have france has never been yeah, true, stable true. like the only time that they did have was napoleon that was it it was the only time whenever they had an absolutist come in and take absolute power again like what hitler's talking about when you had this this hitlerian figure manifested in napoleon was the only way that france was ever to come out of turmoil and then as soon mm-hmm. as he died they did it was alexander's uh, empire all over again and descended back into chaos yes um yes, yes. <laughs> you know so i think that brings us to yeah number 10 10 yeah uh, I want to go through this part relatively quickly because I do want to finish up with this number 11 where he talks more about organization and yeah. But number 10, the movement decisively rejects any position on questions which either lie outside the frame of its political work or being not of basic importance are irrelevant to it. Its task is not a religious. Re- Sorry, we'll stop on that point. So I think this is we've said this before. I think. I think this is generally agreed upon among people of our political persuasion that you don't talk about stupid shit that doesn't matter. Like mm. like COVID, for instance, COVID, yeah. the, the COVID mask, COVID vax thing. Nobody of good sense talked about it. I mean, it might have been referred to or like, yeah, but like it was a pain in the ass. It wasn't but, yeah. like you're just going to cause these are this is the system seizes on issues like that because it creates a fake division and right. allows for endless fake political organizing that goes. That's nowhere. the only reason why the LGBTQ XYZ thing took on, because you can just add another letter onto it and have another oppressed minority, yada, yada, that you can talk about infinitively. Uh, the other another example of the I mean, abortion is the, the classic example of this yeah. because I mean, even the, the, the reasonable position that everybody holds, whether they admit it or not, is eugenics. Right. Uh, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, OK, if, if a woman is like if she's going to have a uh, mentally defective child, then yeah, abort it. probably abortion should not just be like on the table. It should be like, yeah, uh, it's slightly that, mandatory. yeah honey, like <laughs> it's cruel to bring that into the world. It's right. cruel to on multiple levels like genetic defects. Right. And, and, and vice versa. It's like, yeah, OK, you got knocked up. Um well, uh, yeah. sorry, honey. Uh, the, the child looks healthy. Yeah. That child is not yours. It's property of the state, just like your body is. <laughs> just like all of our bodies are. Just, oh, my body, my choice. None of our bodies, none of our choice. Yeah, rights are made up. Come on. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> like people are like, oh, I have rights. What? Explain that. Explain that. Like, I mean, it, you, you know, know, the Nazis talk about this in their, their advice on like general physical health and well-being. Yeah. You're supposed to be, you know, in shape and you're supposed to uh, treat your body well by uh you know, limiting the amount of uh booze and tobacco intake <laughs> you're supposed to lim- limit it uh yeah, you're supposed to be within reason because not because oh it's good for you or oh you'll make a better right-wing fighter because your body is property of the state or if the state's defective the movement right and if if you're a defective element of the state then that's the defective right. state don't be a fatty right uh, the next thing is almost a whole entirely separate point, or that's why I wanted to stop after one sentence or half a sentence. The movement's task is not a religious reformation, but a political reorganization of our people in both religious dom- denominations, Protestant, Catholic, he means. The movement sees equally valuable pillars for the existence of our people and therefore combats those parties which want to degrade this foundation of an ethical, moral, and religious consolidation of our national body to the level of an instrument of their party interests. Now, he means religious cult interests. Yes. Is what he means. Uh, So, 
yeah, in, in the case of Germany, we're talking about Protestants versus Catholics. Hitler's movement, George Lincoln Rockwell followed the same policy, was don't talk about religion. I think it's less of a problem now than it was 100 years ago. Yeah. Just because it's more very few people now. really have, I mean, was I, sure, was my family Catholic? Like, yeah, I guess. Did I, did I go to church as a kid? No. Was I like baptized and confirmed? No, I mean, but if I've gone to mass, I've gone to a Catholic, like whatever. Like I don't, yeah. I don't feel any oh loyalty to the Pope, <laughs> and, and I, I think most people are of that. Like you maybe have some like residual cultural right. feeling about okay, I guess this is the way you cross yourself. This is when we say Amen. <laughs> <laughs> this is when we stand up. Oh, you know the moves. You've been to church before. Okay. But it's it's all superficial. I mean, this is not like a deeply felt religious belief for most people. Not anymore. Yeah. Um, so I think it's much less of a problem. But you do still see it in America and in dissident politics, even with hmm. the, the trad Catholic thing. That is becoming more popular. Yes, it is. Do you want to say something on that? I feel like you could say things on that. Oh, yeah, I could. I can always cut you out. But <laughs> I, I, I'll just yeah. cut you off if you say anything that's like too... It's always becoming more and more become the norm, I suppose. Just no, no, just sentiment. go ahead. Like, <laughs> fanatical intolerance. Hitler says we need to be fanatically intolerant. So well, because it, it is the problem, though, is that like I, I'm not trying to, to, to... If you're not intolerant enough, I'll, I'll cut it out. All right, fine. It's the... Okay, the issue is, is that it's... It's a Trojan horse. It always has been and always will be, right? Uh, and that's kind of – even the Protestants kind of realize that with the Catholics because of the Pope thing or whatever. And they, they recognize it as being allegiance to another leader or whatever, right? They did the whole thing with JFK. But it goes beyond that because – and this is this is the one big fight that I get people bring out all the time. When you go to Mass you – know, well, Sorry, you, let me just stop. Oh, yeah. The point you're just talking about, JFK, right? Right. It's the idea that if he's a Catholic, is he not loyal to the Pope? Right. It's a reasonable thing to ask, it is. given 1,000 years of Western history, where this was a fucking problem. <laughs> where we had the people being like, oh, well, that's just, oh, that's so intolerant. Of course, you know, blah, blah, blah. Guys, like, the, the Pope, uh, wait, the Pope I mean, issued edicts for war. Right. If, if, <laughs> I mean, if your position is like the Pope is politically impotent since Italian reunification or, I don't know, since, um, since like Frederick II or something, like, okay, fair argument. Still, like, though. To bring up the point that like, yeah, you know, a guy, if, if you have a religion that can excommunicate you and say you're going to hell if you don't follow this guy's leadership, he seems That's like he leverage. should be exercising a certain amount of political authority over you. And actually, we saw this fairly recently yeah. uh, with um, Kerry, John Kerry, yep. when they were denying him baptism because of abortion. Oh, I forgot about mm, that. Was that not an attempt to exercise political control over somebody? It does. It does seem like it. Right. So there you go. But I cut you off. Yeah. No, 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 no. But it's 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 a valid point, though. And, and so the the... But the, the, again, with the Pope uh, being being that issue, right? So it's it's the allegiance aspect that's the big deal. It's the allegiance to something mm -hmm. else. But this plays allegiance to a different role, and that's the allegiance to what is considered as the flock of Christ or mankind itself. It's this universalism that I think is the most problematic thing with Christianity when it comes to this, and that uh, that definitely hinders the ability for any type of nationalism to take root. Hold on, though. But, Hitler's yeah. not attacking Christianity in general. What he's right. saying is the you have factions within Christianity that would seek to take over any political movement and instead of pursuing the political ends, simply redirect people into being converted uh, into that church. Well, right. And that's that's my, my point, though. It's a, is and that that's, that's their political end. That's their objective. Right. Their objective is get more people 
in Lutheran Church, Catholic Church, Calvinist Church, whatever. Through in the United States, the Christian the Christian sects have had such massive political influence in our country with prohibition, again the abortion things or whatever, circumcision being mandated across basically the entirety of the United States. These are political or, or they're religious political ends that have been met so you're with saying, the effort. You're saying you you hold the Christian churches in the U.S. responsible for not opposing circumcision. Is that what you're saying? I, I, well, I, I not opposing it for deliberately in, implementing it with Kellogg. Oh, well, yeah, good yeah. point. But but the reason being, what I'm saying is that it's it's not it's not that we attack Christianity. It's more so that the specifically the sects that have come out of the United States with with the puritanical root population that the United States has for Christianity, right? Like the, the yeah. extremism that comes with the Christians that were removed from Europe at the time, right? That that we see manifest here. The United States has a more radical and 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 a lot of times violent Christian nature than does old world Europe. That would be a difference than what Hitler was dealing with that compared to what we're dealing with today. We in the Middle Ages you had the uh, the monks of flagellation, the guys that would beat themselves, yeah. right, and like you know cause themselves raw. There's not much difference in the fanatical uh, mentalities here of, well, of the I, Christians. I would, of the admit, I would actually argue against. I mean, I would temper that by saying that in yes, Americans tend to be there is a, a greater strain of religious uh, Christian fanaticism in the U.S. than in Europe now, mm. but both. Europe and America had more serious attachment to their religious cults a hundred years ago. So, right. in that regard, like maybe America is just kind of is fairly comparable to Germany of the 1920s, where people did take being a Protestant or a Catholic seriously. I mean, it was like right. you're not going to marry. I'm sure there were plenty of families back then who would have been like, "Okay, son, you're not marrying a Protestant girl," or vice versa. It was. It was. I mean, most. It was probably for the most part. It was like whatever. Who cares? Right. Because like you still had the. There still was that sense wars. that we should keep ourselves within our own group. Yeah, I'd probably say well, throughout most continental Europe. Correct. I'd say Europe, Germany slightly less so because of the wars that like of, of creating all the secularism within Central Europe from the. the what I'm saying though is that the secular or the uh, the cult affiliation. What's the word called? Uh, we said it all the time during the Iraq War. Um, not secularism, sectarianism. Mm -hmm. The sectarianism in Germany of then and America now is, I would say, comparable. I, well, going to points that you tend to make, I would actually say it's worse in the U.S. now than it was then because back then the, the sects were basically just Protestant and Catholic. Uh -huh. Here you do have Mormonism uh, and Mennonites and Amish and, and an infinity number of Protestants, and you know, and then you have your Catholics on top of that. You but have most your Orthodox people, on top. You know, uh, Orthodox most, Catholics. No, no, no. Blah, blah, blah. But look, most of those people aren't in the tar the demographic that we're talking about here. I mean, like Mormons, yes, you have working class Mormons. You have no, the Amish aren't political. Uh, Mennonites aren't political. You can pretty much rule out uh, Orthodox Christians because they're not really the the core of any National Socialist movement is going to be working class people who are of either a vague religious nature or of pretty much no religious nature. Yeah, I don't see. I don't actually don't see this question being terribly important for. For the demographic that we're actually talking right, about, right? Like here. implementation like, like we, of the modern world. Right off a lot of the the hardcore people who take their religion more seriously than their politics are not counted in what we're talking about. Okay. Well, what sense. I think we're talking about here specifically is people who are politically motivated and who want to do politics, but who are lured away from politics by 
religious fanatics. Like, uh, oh, you don't want to, you, see, you I don't need to do politics. The... Just come to church. Be a Mormon. Be a Catholic. Be whatever. Oh, you That's mean the, the nullification of the of the yes. effort, right? Okay, so I, I was taking it more so as the uh, people that are involved in politics, but instead of pushing that energy towards something folkish, they push it towards the uh, their religion, right? Like they use their political position to benefit their religion as compared to benefiting the folk. Are you talking about people like in Congress, or you mean like yeah, like people the, on the internet, like, like the kind of people that that got the uh, they got prohibition passed, right? Uh-huh. Like those people that went that's like that had nothing to do with economics or anything else like that. It was just a it was a religious move for the most part, and it was geared towards a, it's like they took all that political energy. At, in the 1920s, there's something, something like serious things were actually happening, but they geared that political energy towards prohibition as compared to anything else, right? As mm-hmm. compared to economic reforms or anything else like that. Yeah, oh, what, right, what right. you just said actually does kind of, I mean, it, it brings together nicely the two points that are are juxtaposed here: political or reorganization or the religious denominations talking about uh, prohibition. So you've got religious denominations pushing for prohibition mm-hmm. and. It, it, it's not really so much like I don't think that your example actually backs up the religious point so much. It backs up the previous point about pet issues mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. abortion, COVID, whatever, direct taking all that political energy and directing it into prohibition. The best example is, is Nick Fuentes. I mean, I can't. It's hard to tell. I mean, it, it's hard to tell if he is trying to use Catholicism to push American firstism or if he's trying to use america first nationalist sentiment to push catholicism i can't i don't really watch him enough to or at all but i don't know i I can't tell uh but i think that's part that's actually the 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 point is like well which are you are you a catholic you're a nationalist right yeah whose interests are you serving going on the movement finally sees its task not as the restoration of a definite state form and in the struggle against another but in the creation of those basic foundations without which neither republic nor monarchy can endure any oh this is kind of an irrelevant question to american politics but the idea in germany of yeah monarch people who are still arguing for the monarchy like let's restore the monarchy in the 1920s which you know wasn't unreasonable and right. it had only been five years 10 years and the republic was very young at the time too it was only 50 years old so it makes sense that they could renew on the point being is that they, they weren't trying to create a movement that was for either a republic or a monarchy, but to create the foundations of civilization that could produce either a republic or yeah, a monarchy. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Because who really who really cares which form of government it is as, as long, long as it as works. National socialist. Yeah. Yeah. As long as it works for as long as it's, it is. It's rooted in that, that national socialist mentality is and like it works for us. Like national socialism is a philosophy, not necessarily a governmental you know, structure. So you can apply whatever governmental structure works best for your governing if you're a governed body. Uh, basically is how that works. Yeah, and, and I'll just re-say what you said in Hitler's words uh, to round this out. The question of the outward shaping of the state, its crowning, so to speak, is not of basic importance, but is determined only by questions of practical expediency. Mm-hmm. For a people that has once understood the great problems and tasks of its existence, the questions of outward formalities will no longer lead to inner struggle. Exactly. Okay. All right, here we are at number 11. <laughs> Finally. All right. So this is where Hitler gets – it's kind of a, a celebration of Ramadan as uh, we are in Ramadan right now. Mashallah, <laughs> Habibi. Uh, he, he does say a lot – this gets kind of Muslim-y and I think that's intentional. Like you'll see what I'm saying as we read it. Like it's it, – the, the Muslim coloring here is there and I guess it was lulls in the 1920s. I think it was just like – I'm oh, sure, yeah. Haha, he's, yeah, Muslims. Yeah, I know, I know about them. I read about them in a book once. <laughs> 
The question of the movement's inner organization is one of expediency and not a principle. Okay. The best organization is not that which inserts the greatest, but that which inserts the smallest intermediary apparatus between the leadership of a movement and its individual adherence. For the function of organization is the transmission of a definite idea, which always first arises from the brain of an individual, to a larger body of men and the supervision of its realization. Hence, organization is in all things only a necessary evil. In the best case, it is a means to an end, and in the worst case, an end in itself. Since the world produces more mechanical than ideal natures, idea-oriented people, the forms of organization are usually created uh, more easily than ideas as such. Yeah, not to, not to, to interject yeah, this tangent. Uh, it was a different – I'm pretty sure it was a different episode where we had this discussion. I can't remember when it was um, where we were discussing the differences between um, mechanical – or the ability for mechanical uh, idea for human brain functions. Some are mechanical and some are metaphysical, kind of thing, right? We think of like uh, people who they know exactly how to do shit. If you hand them the paper, yeah. But like, if it's like, okay, figure it out, dude. They can't do it. And conversely, you have people who like have always figured it out, and you tell them, look, you have to follow the fucking rules. Yeah, they're, they're like, like ah, I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you need. You need people who are able to do both. And you have to sort them appro- appropriately, whether they're mechanical or or ideal nature. And hmm. I mean, there are more people who can follow the script than than people who can think of things uh, for themselves, right. which is true, and which is fine because you need that just is you what just it is. need more people who are going to follow. Imagine if we had a society of all ideal natures. That would not it wouldn't work. work. Just have it. That's what I, they're trying to build now, and it's a shithole. Yeah, <laughs> um, but. Going back to an an earlier point in this, all that he's saying here is very applicable to Germans Mm because Germans are more tend to be more toward the mechanical nature. You get you get it's uh, it's a joke. It's a Jewish joke, but it's 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 a joke. It's also true. It's (laughs) It's a stereotype. It's a stereotype. It's one of those true stereotypes uh, that that Germans tend to be more toward. well, we are forming a political party. We need to have the president and the treasurer. And yeah. we will have a... We will have, like, they yeah. start... Oh, we need to have a constitution. And it's like, there's three people in the room. Yeah. I mean, Hitler complains about this. It's like, what are we doing? Like, you're 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 already assigning uh, government titles and we're like three guys. Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> It'll all um, come out of this, you know. So. But, and Hitler will talk about this. There is a converse problem where you have no organization and it doesn't work. So... The practical development of every idea striving for realization in this world, particularly one possessing a reform character, is in its broad outlines as follows. So now Hitler is going to explain how how you go from having a great idea like he has, to, <laughs> very modestly, right. to how you bring it into the world. Some idea, some idea of genius arises in the brain of a man who feels called upon to transmit his knowledge to the rest of humanity. He preaches his view and gradually wins a certain circle of adherence. This process of the direct and personal transmittance of a man's ideas to the rest of his fellow man is the most ideal and natural. With the rising increase in the adherence of the new doctrine, it gradually becomes impossible for the exponent of the idea to go on exerting a personal direct influence on the innumerable supporters to lead and direct them. Proportionately as... In consequence of the growth of the community, the direct and shortest communication is excluded. The necessity of a connecting organization arises. 
Thus, the ideal condition is ended and is replaced by the necessary evil of organization. Little subgroups are formed, which in the political movement, for example, call themselves local groups and constitute the germ cells of the future organization. Okay, so a typical person can know and keep in their head 150 people, the, the so-called Dunbar number. Yeah. So you, you have the Dunbar number and you can you can directly have a group of 150 people and it'll kind of spontaneously order itself. But what Hitler's saying is, yeah, if you want to get beyond that small group, you're there's going to need to be some way of delegating authority. Right. If the utility and here's where we get Muslimy. <laughs> if the doc if the unity of the doctrine is not to be lost, however, this subdivision must not take place until the authority of the spiritual founder and of the school trained by him can be regarded as unconditional. The place political significance of a focal center in a movement cannot be overemphasized. Only the presence of such a place exerting the magical spell of a Mecca or of Rome can in the long run give the movement a force which is based on inner unity and the recognition of a summit representing this unity. So I, you know, I agree with that. This is why like you're never going to have organization on the internet purely. Right. Uh, because you need, well, one, you need people to actually come together. And Hitler, I mean, Hitler doesn't even conceive of the idea of conducting a movement by like a letter campaign right yeah uh, it's not it's, a part of it <laughs> so he's he's already working from the point of okay well we need to have irl meetings but yeah. he's saying even more than just irl meetings we have to have them in the same place where we're like sinking the roots into that city into yeah. the surrounding countryside and colonization even, right thus informing the first organizational germ cells we must never lose sight of the necessity not only of preserving the importance of the original local source of the idea but of making it paramount this intensification of the ideal moral and factual immensity of the movement's point of origin and direction must take place in exact proportion as the movement's germ cells which have now become innumerable demand new links in the shape of new organizational form so first you have mecca or sorry Munich. <laughs> that was accidental. <laughs> First, you have Munich. Then you have oh, we have a group springing up in what's another? What's a second-rate town in Bavaria? Uh, Schwäbisch Hall. Okay, Schwäbisch Hall. <laughs> yeah, we have a secondary thing in Schwäbisch Hall. Okay, no problem. We'll call them a local group. There are a hundred guys. We'll put one guy in charge. He can delegate maybe five guys, and they'll have little teams of twenty. It, it works roughly. Right. Um, minimum organization. What happens, though, when we get uh, a group in Frankfurt on Main? Well, that's a big city, too. It might be bigger than Munich. Yeah. How do we know that the Frankfurt on Main group isn't going to become bigger than the, than the Munich group and then overthrow the Munich group? Well, as Hitler says, the the message of the prophet, uh, the Fuhrer, has to be <laughs> unconditional. <laughs> right. <laughs> his, his moral authority has to be beyond all question mm -hmm. uh, in order for him to maintain control over this growing movement. Right. Four, as the increasing number of individual adherents makes it impossible to continue direct communication with them. Okay, yeah, uh, we get the point. So then, easy as it may be to maintain the authority of the original center toward the lowest local groups, it will be equally difficult to maintain this position toward the higher organizational forms which now arise. Mm. So he means, yeah, when you're, you've got your local group in Schweinhall with 100 dudes, yeah. uh, and then you, but you have now you have so 100 that, dudes in 10 different cities across Bavaria. Well, let's split them up into three regional groups of 
300 dudes each, 330 dudes each, and we'll put a, a guy in charge of each, you know, come a, a district leader, and call mm. a gal lighter. All right. Well, now those gal lighters have to be directly tied. I mean, you're giving them a lot of authority if if they're in charge of like these little groups in different cities. Yeah. And you have to make sure those guys are really good. And that consequently demands a lot more of the leader's time and attention or, or his immediate lieutenants have to be going out there and like checking on these guys. Okay. Is this guy actually, is he not being... Is he being too much of a hard ass on like his subordinates? Is he being too loose on them? Like, are there problems that aren't getting filtered up to us? Like all kinds of problems. Quite a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. If finally these larger intermediary divisions are also combined into new organizational forms. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it just gets, as you get bigger and bigger, you you have to have groups in between and it's a necessary evil. All right. So now he has three sub points followed by. Three subpoints of, of the subpoints. Sub yeah, okay. <laughs> First subpoint. From this, the following directives for the inner structure of the movement resulted. One, alpha. Concentration for the time being of all activity in a single place, Munich. Training of a community of unconditionally reliable supporters in the development of a school for the subsequent dissemination of the idea. Acquisition of the necessary authority for the future by the greatest possible visible successes in this one place. To make the movement and its leaders known, it was necessary not only to shake the belief in the invincibility of the Marxist doctrine in one place for all to see, but to demonstrate the possibility of an opposing movement. Mm. So that one's self-explanatory. I think, yeah. B, formation of local groups only when the authority of the central leadership in Munich is to be regarded as unquestionably recognized. Right. Okay. So like in your formation period, like if you're still starting up, don't go around doing splinter groups until you're actually solid in your own ways. Otherwise, it's just gonna it's just gonna actually be that. And it yeah, will like splinter. I mean, in in our context, like your leadership has to be doxed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, public. I mean, that's like, I guess Hitler never had to say that because he thought it was obvious. But it's a different story. Yeah, but I mean, just even in that though, like if you're if you even even doxed guys, like if you're starting up an organization or something, make sure, like, say you're starting up a local organization, right? Like, say we'll take we'll take a a state. Oklahoma. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Sure. So you're in Wisconsin and you're trying to start an organization in what's the capital of Wisconsin? Who knows? Okay. Yeah. Madison. Uh, Madison. Okay. Yes. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm embarrassed gonna, to know that. I, well, I mean, I, I know more European capitals than I do American <laughs> states. I think no. But uh, no. So okay. So you're trying to start an organization in Madison, Wisconsin, but it's fledgling, right? And it's and a couple of others. We just went over a couple of other cities wanted to pop up and, and start their own branches of your organization. Well, before yours is actually figured out you know, to a T what's happening in Madison, these other things starts branching out and you give them your, your go ahead, you give them your blessing. Well, these are operating underneath your jurisdiction, but yours isn't fleshed out and they start doing it better than you. And then fissures start and cracks start to see be, be formed. And then you can actually get one group being able to take over the other group because the, the, the hegemony is not established in that main group yet. Right. Yeah. Like, like the, and, and not just like the and, well, and Hitler's emphasis yeah. is on that. The, main claim to legitimacy of the core group has to be the ideology right which you has know, to be totally you're, fleshed you're, out even if you can't out organize the other groups because you know you're starting in munich like eventually there's going to be a bigger frankfurt group and a bigger berlin group right you have to, if you have the ideology if you are established as the spiritual philosophical yeah example that the whole country is following and you and and you know your your top boys like goebbels goering yeah then it allows you to give free reign to these subordinate groups because they, you know, they're going to recognize your authority. Right. So you can say, "All right, well, you take the initiative. You organize however, you, however you see fit, Berlin. Get it done." Yeah. In under this mindset. Yeah. 
and thereby you don't have to worry as much about like actually training them yourself right you have the basis you give it to them they do the template all right c and this is the one with subpoints a subpoint with subpoints likewise the formation of district county or provincial groups depends not only on the need for them but also on certainty that a unconditional recognition of the center has been achieved okay we know that furthermore the creation of organizational forms is dependent on the men who are available and can be considered as leaders this may occur in two ways Subpoint alpha the movement disposes of the necessary financial means for the training and schooling of minds capable of future leadership it then distributes these men thus acquired systematically according to criteria of tactical and other expediency okay so this is like the steve bannon model of building a monastery in europe and bringing a bunch of guys there because you have a fuck ton of money and then teaching them esoteric trumpism and <laughs> ebola and then sending them out to preach the good word that i mean you know like you laugh i mean i, I it's a dumb example but uh it's kind of, I mean, I don't know, i'm sure you could i'm sure if i dug i could find an oriental example like i'm thinking of the almoravids uh mm. all, yeah the almoravids this is like a Moroccan group in like the 1100s who founded a, a rival school within Islam. Well, not rival school, but they they were Malachites and they they needed to bring purity of Islam back to the Berbers because the Berbers were, you know, <laughs> savages. Yeah, doing their savage thing and like, you know, becoming uh, heterodox. Oh, boy. <laughs> so they founded like schools called Morabit. Yeah, Morabit, where they would teach people the principles of of uh, their founder whose name escapes me and then those guys would go out and preach more so i mean they were that, like islamic mormons yes <laughs> yes that, that yeah that that's yeah thank you thank you for bringing me into my my own civilization and, <laughs> and these last two centuries uh yeah so mormons morabits morabitin what that's weird same thing <laughs> same thing it's uh, fascinating though that's probably not going to happen hitler says in the next sentence yeah this way is the easier and the quicker However, it demands great financial means since this leader material is only available to work for the movement when paid. Yeah, actually, the Morabits weren't paying people. I don't think the Mormons are either. Yeah, but that, that means... That Steve means Bannon that. definitely is, though. Ain't nobody mm. would work for that shit. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's what makes the other one so powerful, though, is they don't have to pay people at that point. Yeah, true. Like, you know... <laughs> so I, I think that's sort of a straw man. Hitler just sets that up to be like, yeah, that's not happening. Right, yeah. Uh, bravo. The movement, owing to the lack of financial means is not in a position to appoint official leaders, but for the present must depend on honorary officers. Mm -hmm. This way is slower and more difficult. Under certain circumstances, the leadership of a movement must, set large must let large territories lie fallow unless there emerges from the adherents a man able and willing to put himself at the disposal of the leadership and organize and lead the movement in the district in question. You'll have unorganized districts and until you like don't appoint some guy until there's somebody who's like okay i actually could see this guy as being like a platoon leader yeah. or a battalion leader. don't just appoint like, leadership because there's a, there's a necessity for it yeah. is basically what he's saying it's like okay we we or maybe maybe you leave like 100 guys unorganized but you have like a group of 10 and there's one guy who's like oh yeah this guy's got his shit together yeah all right let's make him the leader of 10 and see what he can do but yeah. leave those 100 to like fuck around until we find somebody and then maybe he's good enough we'll put him in charge of those guys you know yeah. however it goes or or just yeah or you just have an entire group where it's we like you might have a hundred guys for a year 
in one area that, that are unorganizable or, or you just don't see the talent for it or whatever. And over maybe a year and change, two years down the road, within that hundred guys, a new one comes up that actually has the leadership potential and then you put him in charge. Mm-hmm. Don't just get don't just make leadership positions because it's necessity. Right? You have if you have to fill a void, don't just fill the void because then you're gonna put something in power that might not actually be good whatsoever. You could be opening a Pandora's box with some kind of psychopath or something. Uh, I know it's a little extreme of an example, but you know, sometimes you again be wary of sociopaths and the people yeah, that, that you, are that are striving for leadership i mean you, you have to find a way to eliminate people like that from the hierarchy so i mean it's as your organization is growing i mean hitler doesn't quite lay this all out but you're gonna have to come up with like procedures like okay this guy this guy's a shithead and we need to get rid of him so here's like the rules and here's the procedure and done it may happen that in large territories, there'll be, okay, uh, some territories will be two or three, uh, almost equally capable. The difficulty that lies in such development is great and can only be overcome in the course of years. That's what I said. You just wait a year, wait, you know, a year or two, whatever, if you need something to manifest. Uh, as worthless as an army is uh, in all its organizational forms without officers, equally worthless is a political organization without a suitable leader. Not founding a local group is more useful to the movement than when a suitable leader personality is lacking than to have its organization miscarried due to the absence of a leader to direct and drive it forward. Right. So, again, if there is bad so be- better no leader than a shitty one. Right. Or just or, or better better no better no local group than a shittily organized one, too. Yeah. Because, again, it's, you know, you can go so wrong so quickly. Uh, leadership itself requires not only will, but also ability, and a great importance must be attached to will and energy, then to intelligence as such, and most valuable of all is a combination of ability, determination, and perseverance. Right. Find your most eugenic leadership. So on one part in this, I wrote, Hitler says two things in here that are super Muslim-y. He said the Mecca thing, and then he said Let's be the, tra- the, the part was training of a community of unconditionally reliable supporters and development of a school for the subsequent dissemination of this idea i mean you're just thinking like uh, i'm thinking arabia like seventh century like <laughs> dun, 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 or uh <laughs> riding around on camels like i just angel gabriel just came to me you infidels and this is what we're going to do we're going to destroy the jews in medina and then we're going to take back mecca pre-based honestly I mean, <laughs> it's kind of uh, yeah, I wrote in the margin, my Fuhrer, where thou art Muhammad, I will be Ali. <laughs> Just to round out our Ramadan special, I suppose, right? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so... Uh, but in all seriousness, like, Hitler is... I don't know what book he read on Islam. He clearly read something. He did. Because these <laughs> these analogies, or the, the language that he's using, I mean, it, it applies to Christianity, too, but, like, he does straight up say Mecca. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. It, and that's the weird part is that uh, this is, again, obviously aside, like, just for our listeners, we have finished our, our 11 points for the day. Um, but, yeah, as an aside, there was – there must have been some massive influence. I don't know. He, might, he Honestly, he probably read some book while he was in the trenches sitting there for so long. He might have just read something on, on Islam while he was there. Um, well, honestly, I bet you anybody had to do with architecture. I bet you that's what his foray into Islam was originally was architecture because he was such a it was so big into architecture and painting it. Mm. And I bet you any money he was like, oh yeah, I love the 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 architecture of these people. Let me read about it. And then all of a sudden he just becomes red pill to Muhammad <laughs> 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 and like starts doing all this fun stuff. And now we have like 
I don't know. At least, there's at least one Islamic reference every two chapters in in, in Mein Kampf. <laughs> oh, <it's, laughs> I guess I hadn't noticed. Yeah, it's like there's at least there's a little tiny. He just drops it in, like, and he'll do I it mean, with random a, religious things. Uh, all jokes aside, like it is a good metaphor for what he's trying to do. It is. It's yeah, because it, it as, as far it's as a, a political a politico religious system for organizing a people, the Arabs, the Germans, right. who are completely unorganized and. Uh, tyrannized by jews right it, <laughs> it, yeah there's a lot of parallels to be drawn so it makes a lot of sense um and he only he only uh he references christianity obviously a few times when it comes to organization uh the one i, I briefly mentioned earlier uh, or kind of touched on it but didn't really get into was um where i talked about breeding your own leadership and he talks about that with the the clergy as that how the priests at the time or like your head priests weren't allowed to 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 procreate really right they weren't allowed to like you know marry so the only way for them to create new priests was to then indoctrinate children through the clergy right like to right. alter boys and everything else like that there's another parallel that could be drawn to that with homosexuality as well is that they have a grooming mentality right as far as to create your next generation of things but the the point is, is that if you want to circumnavigate uh hereditary aspects for your leadership right for if, if you if you want to create a fear right in order to prevent in order to go back into the the social contract mentality and to prevent the ability for in for, for hereditary uh leadership uh-huh. you would have to then breed your leaders right and create them from right scratch. well i i like your two examples of the catholic church and homos but uh, right. <laughs> I, think, I think a more favorable example of what you're talking about mm-hmm. would be the five good emperors in rome how okay uh, yeah. you know nerva trajan hadrian antonius pius and uh, marcus aurelius how they passed nerva adopted trajan as a son now, trajan was i don't know in his 30s <laughs> adopted and like oh hey dad thanks uh, dad <laughs> thank you it was it was like you're now formally we had an yeah. adoption ceremony you're now formally my legal son right and then when nerva died trajan could take over so nerva didn't have a biological son trajan did the same thing with hadrian and so on but you tell marcus aurelius mr uh, stoic philosopher <laughs> fucked it up by having that degenerate commandos take over we've all That's, seen gladiator we, we, we know have, what yeah. happened yeah <laughs> But yeah, that is that is kind of a horrible end of that 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 tradition because right. it does work very well. Yeah, but it the thing is, it's like how do you enforce it? You just happen to have in the Roman you know context four emperors who passed it on that way. Well, if the issue is never, that Rome, it was never really was able to be established because they didn't have a social contract. The Romans didn't have a social contract. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> come on. No, come the fuck on. <laughs> Enlightenment that, poster. That's good. You got me. That was funny. That was great. <laughs> that was very good. <laughs> but, I mean, in all honesty, right? Like, so the, the, the Romans didn't have a social contract. So they didn't They didn't have anything to hold their feet to the fire, I guess, or something along those lines. You would have. You would have to implement some way to institutionalize it i think that was the big issue that hitler saw napoleon saw oh, really? it, alexander saw it um every great leader that ever had an empire uh had this had this same issue of how do you yeah alexander properly pass down uh <laughs> let's take a bad example alexander alexander <laughs> did alexander did like alexander really embraced the like let the strongest win. Yeah, it, <laughs> it was definitely by his right. Nietzschean power. Yeah, and then he goes off and dies in an as alcoholic dying, rant well, <laughs> as, he's, as he's dying, and like his his soldiers are filing through, and he's like greeting them by name because he knows them all. Uh, like, oh, Alexander, my Fuhrer, I love you. And he's like, and his generals are like, okay, but seriously, sir, like who who who's gonna take over? You got it. You got to pick one. Yeah. <sighs> 
to the best. <laughs> and then to just, the best. And then he drops out, and then you have a war forever afterwards. Like, and the absolute di- he might as- the dissolution he- of one of the greatest empires of all time. He might as well have said for the lols. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> he might as well have said for the lols, guys. Like, as- I mean, you, like all you look at the ruins do, of Persepolis, and it is for the lols. All he like- needed to do to preserve his empire, probably, it was just say. Name is successor. Yeah. Antiochus, it's fucking you. Yeah. <laughs> Antioch Ptolemy, who are the fuck? Like yeah, you. Name you, one. You guy. Yeah. The rest of you shut the fuck up and follow him. Or the rest of you are retiring. Whatever. Like Oh, that would have been better in order to remove them from power yeah, like, so they you're, wouldn't you're have a, a struggle. We'll give you yeah. a, a pleasure palace on Delos, no problem. Easy. Uh yeah. <laughs> we'll give you in, infinite Iranian girls, uh mass race mixing. Because yeah. <laughs> he was into that. Like, of course he was. You know, like <laughs> anybody who invades the Hindu Kush tends to be. So <laughs> Yeah. But like the Empire that it would have been had Alexander held on to his empire, and this is an issue for Hitler and a bunch of others, too, because of, of specific choke points for this geo- uh, geopolitically. Had Alexander held on to his empire or his empire lasted, it probably would have been one of the wealthiest empires in the history of mankind, just because yes. of the trade routes. Well, Alexan- I mean, Alexander, allegedly, I don't know if this is Arian or who who related this story, but on his, you know, when he was dying or in his last, like, year, his, you know, what are you going to do next, Alexander? His thought was, well, first I'm going to conquer Arabia. <laughs> that I'm gonna con- spice trade. Uh, yeah. Got to get the spices. That I'm gonna right. conquer North Africa and then you know Carthage, and then I'm gonna conquer Italy. Put, knock those Romans down. Why not? Um, so he had plans. Like it was. Yeah. He was thinking about it. But I mean, he could have done. I mean, if if he had done it, he would. It would have been. It would have been one of the wealthiest empires the world has ever seen. Uh, but the serious point about Alexander is that is a failure of leadership. Yeah, it is. Like. A logical thing to do, like a fair thing to do. I mean, you, you as the leader owe it to your people to ha- have a succession. You know, the Hohenzollerns were famous for banging all the time to make as many sons as possible. Yeah. And before the succession. They wasn't. Just, they had I'm to have not a mistaken. There's still Hohenzollerns now. Yeah. Like, so <laughs> there's way, you know, and if you're and if you can't have kids, you're not going to have kids. You have to have a succession establishment. Hitler right. did. He had there was Goering was next in line. This was known. I mean, people, this was established. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's part of the reason the July 20th plot didn't work because people were like, well, where's Goering? I mean, you tell me Hitler's dead, but like, what about Goering? Right. Because he's, 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 according to the list I got, he's number two. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, unless you're saying otherwise, where's Goering? Right. <laughs> you know, Alex, sorry, I was, I had a stupid thought about Alexander. I mean, he could, he could have said, okay, guys, uh, contenders are Ptolemy, Antiochus, Seleucus, and, uh, you know, grease up. Put on the olive oil. We're gonna have you know wrestling match, re- Grecian wrestling uh, in an arena. <laughs> uh, winner gets to gets the empire. You know, and you know you, you you didn't have to decree, which he effectively decreed like okay right. civil war. Yeah, <laughs> we're having a civil war, but it's it's a civil war of champions, which is far more you know civilized. I would say, oh, and oh way oh, less my, my way of doing it. Yeah. Far less destructive than yeah, the actual you're not, you're not con- destroying combat. your entire warrior class and yeah, wrecking your whole empire, burning more imperial cities. <laughs> Sorry, Persepolis. <laughs> uh, all right, we've been going on for almost two and a half hours, so yeah, let's wrap up. I I want to just you know bring it back to what we were saying at, at um, last episode in this episode that 
you know, what is our what is our claim to being able to talk about this? Our claim to being able to talk about this? Why why we can talk about this and no academic could ever talk about this, no matter how perfect his German was, no matter how much history he knew, no matter how much blah, 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 because he is not willing to entertain the possibility that maybe Hitler was right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that is why we have truth on our side, or at least we have the potential to achieve truth. Well, I will <laughs> let's let's dispense with fanatical intolerance. Let's be right. open minded. We'll pretend to be open minded. Oh, oh, okay. We'll pretend to be open minded. Insofar like I can be open minded. You can be open minded because right. we have we are doing a podcast talking about this stuff. And you know, we could have come to the conclusion that Hitler is wrong. Yeah. And, you know, our lives would be a lot better if we had. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 financially. Of course. Right. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's dangerous to be right when the government is wrong. Another another nice French quote from Voltaire. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, well, so, yeah. Future of the show. We will have to do a show about the French at some point. Um, <laughs> we'll have to give the devil his due. <laughs> a big French episode. Uh, yeah. I don't know what <laughs> what part of. Should we there wait until Macron gets out of office? <laughs> no, I don't give a shit about. I like. I don't give a shit about any politician in Europe since 1945. Like I literally try not Hot to learn their names <laughs> because any man who was in any of the top like thousand positions in the Third Reich is of more consequence than any man who's been a prime minister of any European country since the war. Yeah, it's valid, <laughs> right? So yeah. uh, I don't really care. But the French, the French, the French. <sighs> They're so fun. I'm, I'm sure there's 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 some angle there. We're you know we we do we should go outside Germany a little bit and give other countries in in Europe their due. France France is the is is the big the big elephant in the room because they have contributed so much to Europe compared to most other countries. At the same time, they're France. <laughs> so yeah, like yeah, they they're such a great butt of jokes. Well, Napoleon. I mean, uh, yeah, but Napoleon wasn't French. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is true. <laughs> C'est vrai. Uh, I mean, yeah, well, uh, there's Joan, but she was a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> you know? Okay, we'll, th- we'll think about it offline. Right, yeah, yeah, we'll think about it offline. <laughs> where we won't, I won't uh, be insulting them. I, st- uh, I still like the Sun King. I, I know Louis Fourteenth. I know that he might have he might have stabbed all of Europe in the back. See, I just, I just don't know enough about that because my, my knowledge of European history from, well, basically anything before 1914... <laughs> it's like i've been filling it in now over the last like couple years but it's still patchy and it's because the only good schooling i had in this was my ap euro history class mm. i wish i'd had ap euro history or just euro history like two or three periods a day every yeah, year it's like that was the only shit worth learning luckily for me that was most of the history i ever learned was european stuff so i got to learn all about the the knights and the kings and the different lineages and all sorts of nonsense and i mean it gets kind of monotonous after a while and it's like this man begot this guy and this guy yeah, it's endlessly fascinating you know the they i was reading recently about the 10th or the uh, 11th century in italy and uh mm. the the normans and the popes and stuff and I, right there i mean i was there's some stuff there that's like whoa i mean you know jews right yeah <laughs> there's jews there's jews involved uh which instantly piques my interest or everybody's interest it's true right what's well, the best but, part about european history is there's so much of that that is just but like once out. once you find the jew you're like ah yeah okay now i yeah. i see the dynamic here okay now i'm now it pieces together now really i can easy. take it now i can take sides yeah <laughs> <laughs> it does really make like history kind of black and white when you start looking at it from that lens <laughs> you're like was there a jew involved here okay they're the bad guys <laughs> like, it's very easy to do that 
Um, so yeah, we'll we'll continue. We will continue with this mind comp series. We still haven't finished with this chapter. Yeah, we'll so. finish this chapter. I mean, honestly, like other chapters, we won't do it this way. I mean, the the we've been going through this like very line by line, and I think that's I think that is worth it on this chapter. Yeah, some of this other stuff we could talk about chapter by chapter. I think we'll see. Yeah, because uh, we, we can enter into discourse, but this for our, our listeners, like this one was one of the ones that we really did have to break down piece by piece because Hitler broke it down piece by piece when he wrote it. Um, it isn't really a train of thought. He does have it numbered. He does have it subsectioned. It is like you need to go over this this founding building block aspect to this because that's all he's talking about is building blocks and so we have to present it like building blocks yeah and and it is unfortunate just because the ralph Mannheim translation sucks i mean it's it's not terrible like yeah if you have nothing else read it part of the problem is german sentences can be longer and hitler's style is decent but it's he's not a stylist like, right yeah it, it's, you know, it's all train of thought if you're reading there are better, there are far better, better stylists of German. It's the content of the thought, and I hate to say, but Calergy is a better stylist. Yeah, Calergy is a very good stylist. It's very easy to follow yeah. reading Calergy. Uh, it's much harder to, to follow reading Hitler because he wrote this book in like right. ten months. But I, you have to really understand the concept of train of thought writing in order to really get into where he's to understand basically what he's discussing. Yeah, and and it is. I feel like if the sentence if. If somebody were to take all of this and rewrite it in a an easier style, it could be summarized in, in a far shorter work, mm-hmm. which, you know, I guess would have its utility. But the purpose of what we're doing here is just taking it as it is and going through it and explaining it. Because I think even if you are generally knowledgeable about, about the, the period in history, even then it's hard to figure out exactly what he's talking about. And that's why, I mean... Our special claim here is not only that we can entertain the possibility that Hitler's right, but also that we have dealt with many analogous political situations right. in our lives. So we're the closest thing you have to a real live IRL Nazi. Fantastic. So say Kyle. Say Kyle. Deutschland, du wirst leuchten stehen, mögen wir auch untergehen. Vorwärts, vorwärts, schmettern die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Ist das Ziel auch noch so hoch? Jugend zwingt es Jugend, Jugend, wir sind der Zukunft Soldaten. Jugend, 
Jugend, träger der kommenden Taten. Führe, wir gehören dir, wir Kameraden dir. Unser Vater, 